A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Rule the World Cup, Bruce. Should we call it that, Baines? No? I don't know. I don't think it's going to catch on, is it, mate? You've just made that up on the spot, so we've not got much choice anymore. All right, there you go. Rule the World Cup, Bruce. Um, yeah, we, we decided we don't actually have lives and we weren't going to podcast all, all summer, but here we are. Um, how you doing, mate? How, how, how have you enjoyed the break from my beautiful voice? Um, it's been strange not speaking to you on a weekly basis. I mean, we, we still... We still keep in touch. I mean, I fucking hell, I've not done this for so long. I've forgotten how to speak properly. Um, no, you were half. You were only halfway there, anyway, mate. So. I know uh, people don't understand what I'm saying, anyway. But um, no, I've um, I've uh, I've very much enjoyed the World Cup. Um, I, it felt only right on the the first day that there isn't any games to spend our days talking about what's happened before. So I've, it's been um, delicious, hasn't it? Absolutely glorious. It's been Smor- a, smorgasbord of football. It's been ridiculous. I mean, I mean, the amount of times that I've I've had to like kind of pinch myself and kind of go, "What's going on here? Why is why is this been so good?" I mean, there's only a handful of games that have been terrible, um, and that's literally a, a extremely small percentage. I mean, and I th- we'll we'll talk about this shit in a minute. Let's let's give the people what they want, mate. Game of Thrones. <laughs> We've we have the finale you. to talk about, haven't we? Well, yeah, I don't know. Should we? Maybe we shouldn't risk it. But it's been. What are you watching now? Now that that's over. Now that they all died. I'm watching horrendous amounts of football. In between the football, I'm rewatching Freaks and Geeks. Um, yeah, that's good watch. Good seminal watch. 2000 turn of the millennium coming of age television program. Uh, yeah, it's just it's because good. it's you know 40 minutes of of good fun and um, you know kind of like. Uh, Arcs back to when you're in in school type of thing, and it's it's always enjoyable. I always enjoy it, and the amount of people in that cast that have gone on to do incredible things are is ridiculous, and it's something pretty I've impressive, learned. isn't it? Yeah, it's a program I've always it, enjoyed. It's kind of one of those things that I watched, and I get a bit jealous of the actors that they actually got to be in that, and now are all really famous as well. Yeah, I mean, That's they're right. all. Um, you can all see already that they already know what type of actors they're already going to be. I think the only one that's not playing to perhaps the same type he, he does now is uh, Seth Rogen because he's he's kind of the yeah. overly sarcastic ass of the group in, in Freaks and Geeks whereas now he'd he'd be a lot more likely be the you know the funny stoner one um because he so wonderfully plays in ninety nine percent of his films. Yeah, I was gonna say pretty much everything he does in life. Um I I'm not afraid to admit that I've been watching and very much enjoying Orange is the New Black. Oh, I've got that all to watch on my um, on my desktop. I've I've not as yet explored it. I, well, the football's on. I didn't want to start a program I haven't yet watched purely because when you get into the rhythm of watching something and if it's good, you don't just want to be watching fitting one in in between one game here and one game there. I wanted to kind of give something my full attention as 
as is my want. So I, I decided to watch something that I, I have previously just to kind of wind down in between games because sometimes it gets a bit much. I mean, I've been I've been covering the, the World Cup for the good people at um, Sabotage Times and um, it just gets a bit much sometimes. Hashtag fuck Sam Diss. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure if I can say that anymore now that he's he's paying me wages. <laughs> he's he's going to start losing my invoices, but um, yeah, he's, it's been it's been so much fun. I mean, I've, I'm literally not missed a minute of of any of the games. Um, so the the talk that we're about to have, I mean, we're pretending like we haven't discussed it yet, but uh, we have recorded everything. So if we if we, we to trail what we've already done, I think. Uh, we spoke Group A to D um, was just me and Sam Ty of Bleacher Report because you're as you are now sat at work <laughs> recording this under a desk. Um, no, I'm not, boss. If you listen, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Group A to D, you actually had to go and pretend like you were doing some work. Um, so it was just me and Sam. Um, we had a good chat about everything. And Group E to H, that's right, isn't it? E to H was me, you, and. Um, South American Lothario, Rob Brown of this parish. Um, on for his Ca- Captain hat-trick. Calculator, yeah. as he's also known. On for his uh, hat trick appearance, and we discussed um, the last few groups. I mean, it's it's a long one. If you want to listen to it in a few sittings, you're more than welcome to. Um, but you know, we, we, as you well know, we're not fans of editing on this show, so we're going to bung in everything you, at once. When you get me and you get Baines, you get them big and you get them long. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't know saying. where to go from there. I, there I, hope, I hope that's a, a remark Drop. on my height rather than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Really? You you don't like being associated with being a well-endowed gentleman? I don't like to brag, you see. Some people, are, short men already have Napoleon syndrome when it comes to a man of my height, as it is to to know they're, um, to know they're lacking in other, other departments. Um, might just be rubbing it in a tiny bit. We go well. The ladies will be rubbing it in as well. Hey, God, let's just drop this lad shit. Let's on to the football. Right, so Sam, welcome back to the show. You're going to be doing Group A to D with us. Yeah, brilliant. Um, we were just discussing off air the uh, the manner in which we've been uh, recording our views on it in various forms of notepads, and uh, that's been a bit of a shambles for you, hasn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, I've got a. Uh... I've got sort of notes strewn all over the place, all over the all over the page, uh, different bits and different bobs here and there. I've had to buy a new one for the group stages because some of it's incomprehensible. We're just saying that there's that there's notes in there from like games at two a.m. that just kind of question your sanity, just like why am I still awake, written down in a sloppy handwriting. Yeah, that, that that Japan game was it was good for about forty five minutes, wasn't it? And then it, the, the the second forty five minutes, you really do start to wonder what you're actually doing. But um, let's um, let's let's be professional and be chronological and start from Group A. Uh, Brazil won. Mexico came second. And if we we start from with the hosts, um, what have you made of them so far? Well, I was actually really disappointed uh, for the first two games. That first game when they lined up with the exact same eleven that finished the Confederations Cup, I thought brilliant. They're picking up where they where they where they left off. And Scolari doesn't really tweak that much, so I wasn't surprised. But he started Hulk on the left, 
Oscar on the right, Neymar in the middle. And it didn't really seem to work because I, I know Neymar scored two goals, but he pretty much got clamped by Modric and Rakitic. And it, it, it wasn't working. The whole system was about Neymar free on the left, Marcelo overlapping and Fred creating space. And he, he, he sort of ruined it, which, which annoyed me a little bit because I'd been sort of bigging up Brazil pre-tournament. I know it's a bit obvious, but that sort of made them look a little bit weaker than they are. In that third game, he finally reverted to how he had it before and they looked a lot better. So happy in the end, but just unnecessary tweaks for me. Um, with Neymar, um, I've got a slight... <coughs> my theory regarding the amount of goals he's scored so far is that the large percentage of them have been down to goalkeeping errors so far, um, which I know sounds harsh given that he's probably been Brazil's standout player. If you think back to pretty much every goal he scored so far, especially in that first game, the most of them have have been none of them have been especially great finishers, uh, in my opinion at least. I think I think some of them have just been down to poor defending. I mean, you can only beat what's put in front of you, but um, I don't think he's having quite the tournament that perhaps you know Van Persie, Robin, or or you know even Muller is. Um, I think he, he's kind of flat to deceive so far. Would you would you go along with that or am I talking rubbish? I don't think he's been as, as great as everybody expects him to be, but I do maybe think you're being a little bit harsh. I mean, I think that first goal he scored um with the left foot uh in the opener was I think it was a scuff. Some people disagree, but I think I think he scuffed it. So not off to the best start. However, the one against the one against Cameroon where he took it to the defence and dragged it back. That was fantastic. I do think he sort of ran out of options and didn't actually intend to shoot initially, but thought, yeah, never mind, I've got this. Um, yeah, I think he's been okay. Look, Brazil are moving through the gears. They got through first. They're not playing brilliantly. He's maybe not playing his best, best football, but he's got a lot more to offer, and I expect him to get better, so that's that's all right. Um, if we look at um, Croatia next, they've, they've gone out, and um, I'm slightly disappointed by that because they've got quite a an attractive midfield and they've actually got one of my players if the tournament if not my player of the tournament in in even Perisic so far um so I'm, I'm not entirely happy that they've they've gone um what's your your view of them well I was di- I was really disappointed they went out as well um obviously no offense to uh, to Mexico who have been a, a great watch they've been a, a better than I thought they would be uh, better than probably most people thought I was I was sort of rooting for Croatia because I do love that midfield they've got, and I think I think Kovac's biggest fault this tournament has actually been to, uh, well, he hasn't got the best out of Modric and Rakitic, which can which can which can be so deadly if you get it if you get it working the right way. It's such a shame that he neglected that, and he started tweaking other areas of the pitch. Perisic, how I agree with you, has been absolutely fantastic, which. It's strange because all the Croatians are actually labelling their wing situation as the weakest point in the team coming into the tournament, which I thought thought was quite funny. But it it would have been nice to see Rakitic and Modric used properly, and it would have been nice to see them in the the knockout stages as well, so I agree. There was an odd situation, um, especially in the the last game against Mexico, where he seemed to, Kovac seemed to push Modric into a higher position out of a deeper midfield band and try and play him as a 10, which is something we've seen before, uh, especially in his early days at Real Madrid when Mourinho tried to use him there as well. And he's obviously not as comfortable playing in that position. Um, he, he affects the game much more and he looks more comfortable deeper. So that's something I, I questioned straight away when I saw 
the areas in which he was picking up the ball, he seems to he seems to kind of run out of ideas and not be able to affect the game in the same manner he does. Because what he tends to do when he, he gets into the advanced position is he'll, he'll drive the ball there himself. And it'll always be with the intention of, of feeding somebody else. And he'll know... And he's almost he's one of those players that is, is thought two steps ahead when he's when he's got the ball. So if he's driving into space, it's because he's he's seen a pass that he wants to execute and he knows there's there's somewhere from which he has to be to do it. Whereas when he receives it there already, he's got no room in which to to move and, and think about what he's gonna do next. So I think that was a, a, a waste. I agree with you there. And I think Rakitic as well, I mean he's he's just not affected the game in the same level he used to do at, at Sevilla. Um, whether or not that's because he's not the biggest player in the team or not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I, I do agree. I think I think Croatia had more than enough about them to be able to go through. Uh, I think it's deeply unfortunate the manner in which they were um, they were harshly treated in that first game against Brazil with that, that penalty. Um, and they, they could have probably done better because they, they, they'd gone ahead and Obviously, they had, they had the best striker missing, um, but you know, it's as I say, it's just a shame. But um, I think next we've got Cameroon, who, who've been terrible. Um, is there anything you've you've especially liked about them, or put your finger on why they've been so bad as they have? <laughs> it's very difficult to like Cameroon, isn't it? Um, it they were pretty poor. They were. I think with with Honduras, the, the one of the worst two teams in the tournament. They conceded nine, I believe, offhand. Uh, yeah, nine. Just scored one in a in a bit of a dead rub game for them. Uh, started fighting on the pitch. Mukanjo and Asuakoto, uh bonus payments, qu- quibbling over that. Eto probably picking the team himself. It's just it's an unbelievable reel of errors that you just you just look at it and you think there's no way that you're going to succeed. Because I don't think the priorities are correct in that team. It's a shame because individually they have some really good players. Uh, melding them together is is obviously a bit of a problem for Finca. Uh, that formation they played against Mexico, where they just sat really high in defence, squished the midfield back, and then let Vasquez just like bring the ball out of defence and just pick Aguiar and uh, Leyen over the top every single time. I could not believe what I was watching. It was just pure incompetency. And the right back that came off at half time in the first first game, I think his name is Cedric Jugo or something, I can't pronounce his name. That was the worst 45 minutes I've seen in a long, long time on a football pitch. Not all his fault, part of the system, but just nothing to write home about from Cameroon. Um, have you seen that video of when they were leaving and there was the, the little boy who... who Samuel Leto gave a hug to, and they both left each other without saying a word in, in silence, crying. That was, that was probably the nicest thing that Cameroon have done all tournament, to be honest. It was a really nice moment. Have you, have you seen that all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was probably the, the nicest moment, I agree. Because <laughs> the little boy's quite clearly just... He's shaking at one point. He's crying so violently. And Samuel Leto actually gets a tear in his eye, and I don't think it's any sort of... I don't think he's put it on or anything like that. I think he was genuinely touched by the fact that all this lad wanted to do was give him a bit of a cuddle. The fact that our <laughs> our highlight of Cameroon's tournament is is what they did when they left the tournament uh, kind of tells you all you need to know about how bad they were on the pitch. I think there's that one bizarre moment where Asuakoto started fighting with somebody else, which you know isn't isn't unlike him. <laughs> um, 
Do, do you know what that was about at all? Not really. I was right at the end of the game with Benjamin McCanjo, and um, I, th- I think honestly they were just sick of each other because it, it was just a nightmare campaign. They were playing on the uh, they were playing on the on the same side, so I, I just wonder if there was a if there was a slight disagreement in terms of winger responsibilities, shielding the fullback. I know Benny doesn't really like it when he doesn't get the right amount of protection, so maybe it was uh, maybe he was just sick of being exposed. I, I'm not really sure. It's being annoyed with your winger not covering you and then just planting a nut on him. So this is a bit of a difference. I don't think he conducted himself well. But they were both dropped, weren't they, from the next game? So, um, uh, well, I think Benny, Benny didn't even dress. And Mukanjo um, played, though. So obviously Finker had decided that it was, uh, it was Asuakoto's fault. Um, Mexico, who have gone through as runners-up. Um, as you say, they were a lot better than I expected them to be. Um, I feel sorry for Giovanni Dos Santos. Um, he could have been joint top scorer at one stage when he had two goals chalked off in the same game against Cameroon, um, which was unfortunate because both of them were on side. Uh, one of them more explicably than the other. I think there was one where it, it come off a Cameroon defender and it was he was technically on side rather than actually being on side. So that one's slightly more understandable than the other one, but the fact of the matter is that he's he's had two goals taken off him where he shouldn't have done. Um, but they, I mean, are they just are they going through because they're actually good at football, or just are they being powered through by the enthusiasm of their manager alone? It's a difficult one, as you said, taking a, a lot of people by surprise in terms of how how strong they've actually turned out to be. I had no doubts about how attacking they were. Uh, under Miguel Herrera, because he, he does he does pull together a decent attacking outfit. It was that defence that I was looking at on paper uh, before the tournament and wondering how well it would stand up. But actually, what they've managed to do is 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 create a system in which many of their team, uh, what many of their players, can have their strengths accentuated uh, quite heavily, and a lot of the weaknesses are actually hidden as well. Which, you know, at the end of the day, is is sort of the idea of tactics and formations in its rawest form. And to be able to sort of field three at the back with uh, Rodriguez on the right side, who's 32 and has no pace, Marquez in the middle at 35 and has less pace, uh, and still get away with conceding, I think it was just a one goal, uh, pretty impressive. So, yeah, Herrera is a, a, a sort of a bit of a thunderbolt on the sideline for them. But I do think they all trust each other. They all trust the system, and they're all very familiar with one another. So the chemistry is there for them to succeed. Um, talking about their defence, Rafa Marquez has been absolutely outstanding for me. I mean, as you said, that, that system's geared around getting the best out of them, but he's been an absolute rock. He scored a, a header when they needed him to. He's, he's, he's looked well. I mean, he, he's doing what he used to do when he was younger and when he was at Barcelona and stepping out of defence and starting attacks. And a man of his age, and is this his fourth or fifth World Cup? He's, he's, he's looked absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, there's that cliche phrase of... of of rolling back the years, but that's that's what he's been doing. And um, to talk about their manager for a second, are you familiar with how BMP leader Nick Griffin looks? <laughs> because I'm not joking, the man looks like a Mexican doppelganger of, of Nick Griffin. If you if you just want to Google the pair of them and have a look at them side by side, they do look like they were separated at birth. Um, which yeah. I find fairly amusing, to be honest. Goodness, yeah, absolutely. Um, but <laughs> yeah, and there's that, as you, you know, there's that gif of uh, Miguel Herrera sort of on the sideline. Have you seen that one where he sort of lightning rods come out of his fist? <laughs> yeah. Becomes a bit like Raiden. That's brilliant. 
it's yeah. fantastic. I mean, he's provided some some entertainment out there. He's, I mean, to to call him animated is probably an understatement. But um, he, he's been excellent. Um, but if we if we move on to the next group, we started out with probably the game which probably set the tone for the World Cup more than any other, which was just the absolutely ridiculous game between Netherlands and Spain. If we look at the Netherlands first uh, and Louis van Gaal. Um, they've won all their games. They've looked they've looked great in in, in most part. Um, do you reckon they could go all the way? Well, looking at the, the the bracket for the round of sixteen and onward, they have a good chance because they are in the in the correct side of the draw. They've already shown that they can deal with the sort of pacey South American outfits, and they are playing better than Brazil at the moment. So they're in the right side. But I, you know, predictions wise, I, I do. I do sort of hold back on predicting the European side to win on on the Americas continent, just for history's sake. Uh, I don't think it can go all the way, but they've come out a lot better than I thought they would because when they changed formations about two months before the, the tournament, going from 4-3-3 to 3-5-2, because uh, they lost Kevin Streitman to an ACL, I really thought that they had basically tried to do too much to cover for him. But it's just been absolutely fantastic. And now they're not really switching back because the players like it so much. They did it for the second half against Australia. But that's good. That's great management. He picked a, he picked a time in which he could switch back and grab the advantage. It's fantastic. And it's, I'm delighted to see Ron Vlaar marshalling the centre. It's been, it's been great for us. I was, I was as, as surprising as the scoreline was against Spain, I think Ron Vlaar's dominance in defence was just as... Uh, it's baffling to see who've seen him play for a very shaky Aston Villa defence all season. So it does prove that despite England, some players really do turn on and, and actually try and play for their country when they're given the opportunity. But we'll get on to, to England soon enough. Um, we turn our attention to the team that did get spanked in that game and, and uh, outgoing champion Spain. Um, I don't think anybody saw that coming, did they? No, I had them top of the group uh, and I had Netherlands and Chile fighting it out for second in a pretty close contest because I did rate Chile quite highly uh, coming into the competition. Not as, not as highly as they've come out. Obviously, they've been fantastic. But for Spain to go out, and so basically, they have no, naught points after two games was just ridiculous. I mean, this, there can't be anybody here that, that reasonably saw that coming. I mean, they have a squad that was so good. And they were so close to pretty much turning the tables on Netherlands and, and having it 2-0 just before half time. Do you remember that David Silva miss one-on-one with Sillerton? Yeah. He, if, they, if he buries that 2-0, that game is done. Netherlands have lost and Spain are on three points. How things change. The fine margins in football were absolutely ridiculous. That, that miss from Silva has, I think, changed the complexion of their entire tournament. I would, I would agree. And to talk about David Silva more... I'd, I've not been impressed with him at any stage uh, of the tournament at all. I don't think he's been one of their better players in the slightest. When you've got Pedro on the bench and you've got Mata waiting to come on and Fabregas and, and he's getting in ahead of them. I understand what he's done previously for them and I understand his, his, you know, what he what he provides them. But he was so clearly not performing at any sort of level. I'm not saying that all, all the Spanish players were, were performing at, at, in any sense of, Anyway, but he he looked so much worse than even the rest of them did that I thought it was strange that he continued to hold on to his place. 
I mean, they, they were beaten again by Chile, who I think were just driven by a, another fantastic Vidal performance. And, and again, Sanchez as well, giving them all that on the wing. I think for Spain, I think when you hindsight's a wonderful thing, and obviously nobody ha- would have had them down to to perform in the manner they've done. But I think for them, it's the blame for me would would fall on Del Bosque's shoulders in the in the team he's picked, because um, the squad he's taken has missed out on players such as uh, Carvajal and Isco, uh, both at Real Madrid, just to, just to pick on two obvious ones that I think would have improved them because he, he's got Juan Fran on the bench rather than playing him. He, he's got Aspilicueta there, who spent the entire season on the other side, um, and he didn't look particularly good at right-back as far as, as, as I saw. And Isco just gives them something different in, in the 10 position that nobody else really has in that squad. They're all quite tricky, and they're not as direct as he is. Uh, he tends to to pick up the ball, and he, he's almost not to, to push it too far, but he's almost slightly more Dutch in his approach to to how he plays the game in the final third. And I think if they are to readjust, not tiki taka, because I don't think that's dead by any chance. I think if you use it in the right system and and you play it properly, then there's you know there's no finer system. But if if they readjust the way in which they pick the squad and, and do what they did in in 2008 and 2010 and put their, their faith in the youth of the country, um, I think they'll, they'll still be a formidable team. Is that something you agree with at all? Well, yeah, I, I agree with, with most of your points there. I mean, Del Bosque, I think, is to blame. Um, I would pick I would pick two other players who left at home. Interesting you pick Isco and Carvajal. I do agree with the Isco one. I look at Lorente um, coming off a great season, offering them something slightly different. Because uh, at times it did look like it was sort of banging their head against a, a brick wall, um, and I also look at uh, sort of Javi Martinez at centre back, not that comfortable. As for the equator at right back, just spent the whole season on the left, as you say. I mean, I know he's a natural right back, but if you play football, you, do, you you know that it takes you two or three or four games to sort of get back into the flow of things in a different position. I switch from centre-back to holding midfield, and it, it takes me more than 45 minutes to work out what I'm doing again. It's it's only natural. And Jesus Navas, I know he was, I know he was injured, but they had nothing on that right side. They actually played the first game against the Dutch without a right winger completely. Played Iniesta and Silva, basically both clogging up the 10 position or coming off the left. And as Piliqueta was there on the right on his own, Daly Blind venturing up unopposed, swinging crosses and through balls into Robin and Robin van Persie to, to win the game for them. So there's a, there's a serious stream of errors on behalf of uh, Del Bosco here. And I think he's to blame. I'd agree. I think there's almost a, a comparison to be made in in the comfort that he has in his squad, and almost the the pig-headedness and the and the stubbornness to change it. And you can compare that to how Scolari treats his Brazil side because there are players within that that Brazil side that perhaps shouldn't be there. Um, just to go back to that group, I mean, a, a player I've seen a lot of in, in Paulinho hasn't really performed as well as he could have done for Tottenham all season. And that same form has, has been taken into the World Cup in which he's, he's been picked out for, for criticism now. I think Clarence Seedorf was quite damning of him on the BBC at one stage. He, he said that he wasn't he said he wasn't particularly good at attacking, he wasn't particularly good at defending, and that he's a waste <laughs> of a position, essentially. Oh. Which, although sounds like quite a, 
a hyperbolic thing to say. <laughs> when you boil it down, it's essentially the right right assessment of how he's been playing. And when they played a player like Fernandinho instead, they look like much, um, a much better team. So I think, especially with international football, where managers don't get as much time with their players, so it is perhaps easier to fall into the trap of getting too comfortable with the same squad and the same players. Could be wrong. I think picking and and changing and chopping and changing who you've got in your squad is is probably a more more progressive and a, a way of keeping it fresh. Um, because if you, as you say, if you look at the Dutch and the way in which they completely changed their formation and and the personnel to a large extent of of how they were going to approach the tournament, it's given them a new lease of life, and they they look like they've been playing that formation for years. But the reason they're doing so well is because the players are, are new and they still have enthusiasm for the football they're playing. But um, if we look at probably the surprise package of Group B in Australia, um, they might have given us uh, one of the games of the tournament, one of the, the goals of the tournament as well. Um, how have you found uh, the, the Socceroos? Do you know what? I've been really impressed with Australia. and I've seen a few articles that are out there um suggesting that actually Australia should be going home with their tails between their legs with naught points and you know conceding nine goals minus six goal difference it's not it's not a good record but I, I think the World Cup was never the focus for Australia they're looking at that 2015 Asian Cup start of next year they're looking at Ange Postacoglu redefining the Australian style of play they decided to Fire Holger Osiek uh, before the tournament started after that horrible loss to France. His really asinine 4-4-2 wasn't really doing the country any favours. They needed to step it up. And I really like what they've done. 4-3-3-4-2-3-1, possession football, trying to play football the right way. And they're trying to they're trying to sort of reinvent football for themselves almost because they've been stuck in the dark ages for a long time. So I've got a lot of appreciation for what they've done. Uh, a lot of a lot of entertainment as well. Obviously they didn't get any points, but I don't think they care. I would agree. Um, I think they've got a lot of exciting young players. I can't remember what his name is off the top of my head. And flicking through my notes, I don't think I've written it either. What I have written is pretty Bond player that plays on the left. Oh, that's going to be Tommy, Tommy Orr or yeah, Matthew Lucky. Matthew yeah, Lucky or Tommy Orr. I think he came off the bench. So I'm not sure whether it was Orr or not. But he, he had. It almost looks a, a, tad, a tad bit like Harry Kuehl when he plays because he's... Uh, Tricky left winger, he had a really good cross at a couple of points, and they've got players who are young, and they've got just the right amount of experience in there as well, because they've got Millie Yednak, who's come off a really outstanding season for Crystal Palace, and I was really pleased for him that he, he managed to get a World Cup goal, and Tim Cahill has been outstanding at the top of them. I mean, he, he was suspended for the last game, which is a shame, but he, he gave them so much to to play with in terms of even if the cross wasn't as good as it perhaps could have been, he gave the rest of his team the enthusiasm to carry on doing it because he would attack anything. He, he literally would throw his head at, at anything possible, um, which was, was lovely to see. And the, the the volley that he scored and the, the technique to hit it in the manner he did was, was absurd. Because, uh, I mean, when players go to the MLS, they're kind of written off as as, you know, taking the money and going to a retirement home and whatever. But it's a great advert for that league that somebody who can perform to that level in the uh, in the World Cup is, is 
choosing to play out there. Yeah, agree. Um, they're a bit reliant on him, um, but that's that's okay. They now need to address how they're going to move forward because he has he has got a shelf life on him. Um, I do think that that last game against Spain showed just how reliant on Tim Cahill they are uh, providing relief, even though they are making waves in the in the possession game and. Don't know where they're going to go in terms of striking options. Looking at what they had uh, in that squad, uh, who did they start instead? Taggart, who is a is a bit of a one-dimensional guy. He's not the kind of person that can carry a side on his back. Uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing that uh, Foster Cockley has to sort out. I don't really envy him there. Are they in any position to nationalise Emil Heskey at all? Uh, I don't think I think because he played in the 2010 World Cup. I don't think he can. I don't think he can switch. But that was probably the only reason they wouldn't want him. I mean, come on. <laughs> I agree. I think that that would be their best option as well. Um, Chile, uh, we've touched on, but we've not really spoken about in depth. I've really enjoyed watching play. Um, I think the number ten Valdivia. He reminds me of one of those South American playmakers. He's almost in the mold of Raquelme, who's. Not really done well in Europe, but he, he's got that touch of class about him and that, that air of arrogance that he knows he can affect a game. And it's it's so nice to see uh, when he plays. And he, he's he's been one of my favourite players to watch because he, he does kind of... He's a bit of a playboy. He struts about the pitch. And he's nowhere near as professional as, as the likes of Vidal or, or Sanchez are. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he almost has a bigger role in that team because he's one of their more central players. But um, looking at them going forwards, I think they're going to be a handful for anyone they play, especially when, given that they managed to rest Vidal for the Netherlands game, I think some people have drawn some conclusions from that loss that I don't think can be drawn when Vidal's not playing because I think it's it's comparing two completely different sides with him in it and with him with him not. Um but going forwards, as I say, I think they could. I don't want to label them dark horses, and I don't want to say they can they can win the tournament or anything. But in a knockout situation, when it's one off game after one off game, I don't think anybody's want to going to want to play them. Uh, no, playing Chile is it's got to be a bit of a nightmare. If you know that you've got Chile the next day and you're the manager of your team, you are going to be sweating up all night because it's a Playing against that team, that the furious pressing they have, the attacking talents they have, the relentless, the relentless possession—it's just, it looks awful, doesn't it? When you watch them destroy teams and frustrate teams, it just looks. Oh, I wouldn't want to be on that pitch. No way. I think I agree with you about the Vidal, you know, with and without Vidal thing. The Netherlands worked really, really hard to nullify uh, and chase the two midfield players Chile had, uh, Alan Greece and Diaz. I think they pretty much man-marked them. Snyder definitely was on Diaz and Alan Greece was was followed all the way up. It meant that Chile didn't really have any free men in the middle. And Vidal is the guy that will get free or he will take the ball under pressure and just shake off a few players and run forward anyway. That doesn't really bother him. So I agree, it's, it's, it's a different Chile we saw. They lost. They actually played really well, but they lost. But it won't be the same again. Against Brazil, that, that, that's got to be the that's got to be the tie of the round of 16, isn't it? I, I, I'd go for that as well. Um, we'll. We'll talk about that side of the draw afterwards, but just to kind of foreshadow, I, I do think that Chile have more than enough about them to, to cause a, an upset for the home side there. Um, in the next group, we've got Colombia, who just kind of won it at a canter. 
they did, didn't they? They, they? they made it look really easy. I mean, I think the moment uh, Quadrado beat Holibas all ends up on the right and crossed it for Armero to score, it was like five minutes. The, Greece, the Greek resistance, the great Greek defensive wall was down within five minutes. I think we all just thought, oh, God, how are we going to stop them? Because it was just, it was just immaculate transition and counter-attacking play. And I think James Rodriguez has been the best player of the tournament so far, uh, bar none. I mean, Benzema comes close, but wow, that guy. I mean, we knew he was good because he obviously cost 35 million euros and we've seen him play off the left of Monaco, but moving back into that number 10 role where he played when he was a kid but got moved back outside, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, how do you keep tabs on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting as well is he he seems to be playing with much more freedom without Falcao being there because he is he's the focal point of the side now. Um, he's the name and, and the player they seem to go looking for. Seems to be it's it's a sink or swim situation for a player of his age when that much responsibility is given to them. They can they can crumble and they can they can struggle um, if if they're made to be player that's relied upon but he he's he's taken it and he's he's come on leaps and bounds and he's as you say he's been the outstanding player of the tournament that last goal he scored where he he, he jinked past a couple of defenders in the box and then just chipped it over so nonchalantly over the goalkeeper was so classy um he's, he looks a real prospect but i mean if we look at the teams they've played um greece japan and ivory coast none of them have been have been too good so i think the one criticism of that you could possibly have of Colombia is that maybe they've not been tested to the extent that they will be in the later rounds. I think they've got Uruguay next, who obviously are, are completely they're their own soap opera themselves. But um, Colombia, I mean, up front, I mean, they've got um, Jackson Martinez on the bench. That shows you just how how much attacking talent that side has. Yeah, it's uh, it. I agree there. I mean, you can only beat what's in front of you. So let's be fair to them. As you said earlier, you can only beat what's in front of you. But we do need to see how they play against a better side. During qualifying, when I was doing my sort of research work on them, I saw Chile really give them problems when they uh, when they closed down the two defensive midfielders, uh, Carlos Sanchez and Abelaguiar, it was. So when you clamp those two deep and, they, and, and make it so that they are unable to feed James Rodriguez and co higher up, they can struggle to get out of their own half but they're so difficult to break down because they leave six back and they leave the two holding midfielders in front of the defence. You you can't counter-attack them. You can't break them down under pressure. It's just it's just unbelievably difficult to score against them. So I know they haven't played the best teams yet, but I don't expect too much to change in terms of how they play and how resilient they are. I, what I would wonder is whether or not someone's clever enough to just completely remove the service to Cuadrado and James Rodriguez's feet. And that maybe is where we see Jackson Martinez come in as a slightly more longer direct aerial target. He, he scored two fantastic goals in the last game. I mean, two really good finishes, which we know he's capable of. Um, so he's more than an option, both both starting and off the bench. But um, if we look at the team that's going to go through second, somehow, uh, 2004 European champions, Greece. Yes, Greece. Um, they... They're an odd side. Um, I mean, they, they, they just they seem to manage to they just get results despite your better judgment. I mean, have you any idea how how they've got through? Not really, but I knew it was going to happen. It was so obvious that Greece were going to do a Greece and just qualify. It's just so Greece. 
I put a quid on Greece to qualify before the uh, before the last set of games, um, just just because at five to one, I just thought, you know what, they're going to do it. It's just you you can't escape the possibility. Greece will qualify. They will get through. It's difficult to explain. They played a very a pretty good game, I thought, against Ivory Coast. Anyway, I'm sure you probably watched it. Um, I think they played it quite well, and I think they've been slightly different to how we expected them to turn up. They have been a little bit more attacking. They do look a bit clueless in possession. I don't think they like taking the like the sort of attacking or uh, incisive pass. I think they're much happier to pass it sideways or backwards. But they just seem to be able to grind the results out when they absolutely need it. And fair play to Georgia Samaras. Uh, Samaras, that was a great, that was a great penalty, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, that game was so dramatic against the Ivory Coast. I mean, we talk about a team that's that's underachieved. That that generation of players that the Ivory Coast have had. Um, fair enough. In the in the past two tournaments, they've they've had two horrible groups to try and get out of. I mean, I, I think. They've been in the you know the traditional group of death twice in a row before now, and they, they failed to get out of it. But on this time, you, you sort of even though the players were aging more, you, you kind of you hoped that they'd be able to do it. And the game was in their hands when they gave away that ridiculous penalty, and they just seemed to, even more than England perhaps, they seemed to let themselves down. I mean. In the African Cup of Nations, they've they've consistently been the best side and never managed to win it. Um, so I was really disappointed that they couldn't couldn't make it through. Um, what have you made of them? Because I mean, for me, I've I've really enjoyed watching Jovinho take his Roma form into the World Cup, and and I've liked seeing Drogba again because he's somehow at the age he is, he's still probably their best forward. Yeah, I mean, there's good bits and bad bits from the Ivory Coast campaign. I think you could look at some of it and smile and think, great. Some of it you think, really, again, honestly. I think the Didier Drogba effect is still very real. I mean, when he came on against Japan, that just he didn't score, but he, he basically created two goals by not even touching the damn ball. I mean, that's Didier Drogba. Uh, Boney, I think, kind of... He should, he could and should have played better uh, as, as the starting striker, which is a shame, and I think if he... It, they'd be through um, and Jovino again I agree his his Roma form was absolutely excellent I enjoyed watching Serge Aurea come forward it was uh, probably only the third or fourth time I'd seen him in the first game so it was nice to see him he seemed to be their only way of getting forward though did you notice that they had nothing coming through the middle don't think Yaya Torre was fit no one else was willing to run with the ball so it all fell on Aurea's shoulders to just basically slam it in from the right and see what happens he ended up picking two, picking up two or three assists but you can't you can't just trust you can't put all your faith in that one right back that you've got. And in the end, of course, Greece attacked almost solely down the left hand side in the space that he left behind, and they lost two one. Yeah, I completely agree with Aria. I think he's he's been one of their attacking highlights. I think for me, one of their, their letdowns is has been Wilfred Bonny because in that first game, he one of my notes in my book is that he could have scored six goals in the first half, and he, he was so profligate and he was so bad in front of goal. That um, it, it was such a letdown because they could have won that game against Japan, a, an absolute canter. I mean, in the, in the end, they just about squeezed past them late on by turning it around, but the game should have been out of sight. I mean, I think their reliance on Drogba is, in a, in a similar way to Australia's reliance on Cahill, is it's disappointing um, because it's disappointing because you you can't see the way in which they're ever going to overcome that. 
because you can't see a player coming through who's going to be able to to pick up the mantle. I think have they got Lasina Triari on the bench? He didn't. He didn't make the squad. Um, he didn't he, make the squad. But yeah, he's he, he was injured, wasn't he? So he was in and around it, but he didn't quite make it. So they've not even got the option of playing long ball either. I mean, because they've started Bonnie twice, and then they started Drogba in the last game, and were much better off for it. But for me, do you, do you agree with the assessment of Bonnie that he's been extremely wasteful? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I- if he'd have played better, they'd have got through. It's as simple as that. But I do think that Drogba was um, coming off an injury, and uh, both both the Galatasaray manager and uh, and the Ivory Coast manager both sort of said, "Look, he's actually not 100%. I think he is about 36 now as well. So we kind of think of him as this superhuman. Um, I think he is technically slowing down. So maybe he couldn't start. Maybe they just didn't have any other options. But that said, when you have the ability to put Boney in instead of him, you think you look at that group, Greece, Japan, you think we're going through, Boney will fire us in the goals, and he didn't. I think you, you're completely right about Drogba losing pace. I think there was one through ball in the last game against Greece where Yaya Torre played it slightly too hard. and It wasn't drastically overplayed, but it was just a touch too hard. And had this been a handful of years ago, Drogba would have been on on it, and you know the ball would have been in the back of the net before he'd earn it. But because he's lost that yard of pace, he he was short to it. He couldn't get to it. The, the keeper had outrun him to it, and it was just you saw the aging process in full effect. Because it, as I say, had he been any younger, he would have been that would have been blasted into the back of the net before we'd have known to do anything about it. Yeah. Agree, yeah. And for Galatasaray at the end of the season as well, we saw him uh, against Chelsea. And if the ball was not within two feet of him, he wasn't getting it. I mean, I, we, we see him as this titan, this mammoth in the air, and he is as long as you give him pinpoint delivery. He no longer has the ability to shift left and shift right or just make that extra five yards. He can't do it. And it was, it was evident from that uh, latter stage Champions League game onward. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, if we move on to Japan, who... Before the tournament, I was uh, silly enough to to suggest they might get out of the group. In fact, I think I suggested to several people that if they were to put a bet on this tournament, it would be for Japan to get out of the group. They've been mm. ridiculously bad, um, given how many good players they've got. Um, and in a similar way to, to Croatia, they've got all the creating talent in the world, but they just didn't use it right, and they, they paid the price for that. Yeah, Japan were massively disappointing. I had them coming through the group second in my pre uh, pre tournament prediction. So don't feel too marooned in in that. It, don't worry. We, another person at least got that wrong as well. <laughs> they were they were atrocious. They really were. They had no energy, uh, no pressing, uh, no defensive ethics, no organisation off the ball. And then even when they had the ball, bar that first forty five minutes against the Ivory Coast, in which Honda scored that real peach of a goal, they pretty much didn't know what to do with it in the final third. Kagawa was apparently dropped for the second game because he gave the ball away too much. But I mean, Japan's biggest problem was that they weren't willing to take risks in the final third. They end up playing strikers on the wing and strikers up front, cramming strikers into the formation any which way they can, just in hope of a goal and still coming up with nothing. So it, it, you want the risk taker. You want, you want the player to say, all right, look, let's try and feed it into this box and let's try and get the goal. I mean, they had they had nothing. And some people ask me, oh, why isn't Kiyotaki playing, the guy from Nuremberg? And the reason is because he can't score goals. Zaka only knows that he has no striker. So he forces supposed goal scorers into a formation that doesn't fit. And it, it just didn't work. 
I, I completely agree. I think Kagawa looked like a man who hasn't played first team football for a season, and he he just looked short of of what he used to be when he was at Dortmund. And I mean, he did give the ball away a ridiculous amount of times, but that's because his entire game is about trying the the one risky pass, letting it go through. And if one of those do connect and are executed properly, then you're more than likely to get a goal. So the fact he was dropped for essentially doing what he's always done, but slightly worse than we're used to seeing him do it, is, is you know, very disappointing. I mean, it, it's not as ambitious as perhaps Zakaroni could have been with, with how he's playing him. I think Honda's one of those players that I've... Uh, it always frustrates me as well because... He's clearly got all the talent in the world. He's clearly a fantastic striker of the football. He's, he knows where the goal is. He's, you know, all those sorts of cliches. He's, he's a great number 10. He gets himself in all the positions as well. I mean, you'll never see him not picking up an attacking position or picking the right place to be in the box. But he's, I think it's his decision-making more than anything else rather than his talent. Just seems to let him down on so many occasions. We've seen it for AC Milan as well, where he's just... Almost single-handedly, he derails attack after attack just because he picks the wrong, the wrong thing to do. Um, I mean, is is that me being fair or, or am I being harsh? Again? <laughs> I'd say it's a little bit harsh, but I I, <laughs> I, I agree with the uh, the overall point. Um, and I think how I'd say it is that is that Honda is um, he slows things down. Uh, it's not necessarily that he makes the, 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 the bad choice over and over and over again. I mean, he does make his fair share, but I think he takes too many touches on the ball and any, any attack that runs through him more often than not is now losing its impetus. And with Japan unable to break teams down when they fall into sort of two banks of four into a low block, losing the impetus in your attack and losing that sort of energy behind it is actually the worst possible thing that Japan can do. And unfortunately... That's what happens when you run through him at this moment in time. This last six months actually hasn't been that pretty for him. No, I, I completely agree. Um, that's that group done then with Colombia going through first and Greece second. Uh, next is Group D, uh, the home of England. I think that's probably where we should start, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I mean, I wrote a piece before the tournament started um, which essentially said that we should we should scrap the four two three one that that we tried in the warm up games. Um, we should be playing four three three. I said that Wayne Rooney shouldn't be in in the starting squad. I said Stephen Gerrard shouldn't be in the starting squad either. And um, I said that our game should be about utilizing the youth and the pace that we have on the wings and playing a more controlled possession based pressing game in the middle of the park. And we did absolutely none of that, which I'm, I'm not saying that had I been England manager, we would have gone through, although we might have had slightly better chance. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was your assessment of England? Where, where do you think we went wrong? Well, I agree with your points. Um, we looked like we were going to play 4-3-3 in the tournament, didn't we? This is the, this is the infuriating part of it all, is that I, I think I went to every, every England home game um, over the last two years. Uh, so I was pretty accustomed to seeing us try and play a 4-3-3. And it was very obvious that Hodgson was trying to do a few things. He was trying to shoehorn Daniel Sturridge into the squad even when he was injured because he knew he was important. Fine. But it was also evident that that was really marginalising Rooney. A year ago, that was clear. And then you've got 
Gerard is the reducer, which is which is fine. Um, and you've got to put the two energetic central midfielders either side of him to, to to protect him because he can't defend. And we have no natural destroyer, no anchor. We don't have a Luis Gustavo. We don't even have a Vukovic of Croatia. We've got nothing. So you have to basically mask Gerard's weaknesses with energy, which is exactly what Brendan Rodgers did with Jordan Henderson and converted Coutinho into a sort of a more hard-working outlet. You know, right at the last second, we were scheduled to play 4-3-3. It was looking okay. He switches to 4-2-3-1. And you think, all right, well, maybe that's because he's, he's coming up against Pirlo and he wants to play Welbeck as a, as a number 10 and sit him on Pirlo. But no, we didn't even do that either. So it was just, it was just like confusing to see why, after what I believe, and obviously you agree now, on paper, going ahead with the right strategy, he then backtracks from it at the last possible second. And here we are with one point. Um, I completely agree with the point you made about Pirlo. Um, I too thought we were going to play somebody that wasn't Wayne Rooney and sit him on top of Pirlo, but we did well for about two minutes. I think it was Sterling that, that came and dropped off and tried to cover him. But what Pirlo did was he took two steps to the left and one step forward and just slightly out of range for Sterling to, to cover him anymore. And that was the plan done. Um, we, we had no plan B as to where to go if Perlo was to slightly adjust his position. And given that his entire career, he's been man-marked, he, he knows what to do if you're going to try and shut him down, which is why you need to essentially not only shut him down, but have an entire midfield three as a unit working together to to stifle the entire Italian midfield because... The way in which Prandelli played, he, he had Verratti with him as well and, and De Rossi there deeper, meaning that De Rossi could pass the ball to one of the one of the two of them. And Verratti's very much in a similar ilk to Pirlo. He's not at the same level anywhere yet because he's so much younger and he's got so much more to learn. But he, he hurt us just as badly. And I mean, we because of having Wayne Rooney on the left wing and, as you say, shoehorning him in and, and having... Leighton Baines, who had a really poor tournament, unfortunately for him. I mean, he so much pressure on him having dropped Ashley Cole and, and essentially saying to him, you're the number one now, was might have been something for him to get over um, mentally, um, which he didn't seem to do. It just gave Damian and, and Kandreva all the room in the world to, to operate, which was essentially our downfall when, when they scored the second goal, um, which was disappointing, I think. I think we we did a we did a piece um, recently where we where we tried to to get our teams for Euro 2016 for England. I think the player that I I selected who hasn't touched an England senior squad yet uh, that I hope within the next two years comes into his own and and starts to to become the player in which he could be is uh, Nathaniel Shalabar at, at Chelsea because he's. He's one of the only young English defensive midfielders, and that means naturally defensive midfielders that we've got coming through at the moment. Um, is that something you think we need desperately, a, a, a proper European defensive midfielder? Well, it's not. It's not specifically to say that we need we need uh, an anchor midfielder like De Rossi. My point was more that if you're going to play in a four-two-three-one with two holding midfielders, one of them needs to be that. If you don't have one, add a third in and make it a 4-3-3 to protect the other two because neither of them can do the job 
quite as necessary. I'd love to see us have a, have a, a proper defensive midfielder again. I mean, that, that's one of my favourite positions, and I'd, I think we do probably need one on balance anyway. Um, I haven't seen much of Chalaba. Um I do quite like Loftus-Cheek, though. I think he's pretty good. Okay. Um, the other thing I was going to say, similarly to your point with Gerard, is when he plays in a two with Jordan Henderson, I think because Henderson's job is not only to to take the ball and give the link between attack and defence and be the, the impetus going forward and, and be the person who, who shuttles the ball in between the two, he also has to almost cover Gerard because of his lack of pace nowadays and because... He is prone to being caught on the ball and making the the wrong decision back there. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's had a fantastic season at Liverpool, but at this sort of level, the, the decisions he makes and some of the, the, the raking passes he plays wrongly, I mean, five yards over Sterling's head and out, out into touch is, is one of the most frustrating sights in football for me. He's just he's one of those players that I think, in a similar to way what, what France have done with, with Ribéry and Nasri, uh, Ribery obviously wasn't choice, but he's, he's actually with Griezmann worked into their favour as far as I'm concerned. And what what Colombia have managed to do with losing Falcao and, and it's happened all over. And what what Netherlands have done in readjusting is if if you drop the the, the players that you're essentially having to to include because of their name rather than what they provide in Rooney and Gerrard, then and you create more of a team than you do. A selection of individuals, you might actually be better off for it, and I think that's that sort of the crutch of having the talismanic player is something that England have, have had for far too long now, and it's something that we need to to rid ourselves of as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a good comparison you make. It's it's actually pretty startling to hear back that uh, the the three teams that have. You know, lost their sort of linchpin, if you will, have actually just readjusted and as a result have gotten even better. All three are in the knockout stages. All three look like basically three of the top five or six teams of the tournament so far. So it's pretty damning. But did, did we ever really believe that Roy Hodgson was going to uh, have the guts to drop Wayne Rooney? Well, absolutely not. He was never going to drop Wayne Rooney, was he? It was a bit of a shame. Um, Gerard not played in his... Gerard not played to his strengths, but in there is a name. Rooney not played to his strengths, but in there is a name. It only ends one way when you end up playing uh, a team that's actually surprised everyone and finished top. And then, of course, two actual heavyweights in in, in the form of Uruguay and Italy. We um, we talk about Uruguay next. Um, as, a, as a ball inside, they were, they were blown away by, by Costa Rica by, I think, just not playing a, a system that Got the best out of Edison Cavani, um, which was a shame because he's he's he often gets a raw deal um, for for how good he is because there's a lot of money being spent on him, a lot of a lot of hype surrounding him as a player, and when he when he's given the 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 large stage, especially in front of an English audience, we we rarely see the best of him. We really see that that Napoli uh, version of him, which is is sad because people often think he's a, a much worse footballer than perhaps he is. Um, and then obviously Suarez came back and he he, he beat England almost single handedly. Uh, even though to recover from the injury he did was quite frankly ridiculous in that time scale. And then he did something even more ridiculous 
in the next game when he, he bit a third player in his career. I mean, um, there's there's a lot to talk about with Uruguay, but can you sum up everything about them on and off the field? Uh, it's pretty difficult. Um, first game, Costa Rica, very drab movement, nothing. Forlan probably not really belonging to this level anymore and just really devoid of any creativity and ingenuity. So they fell apart for that reason. I mean, obviously, they, they considered three goals. They were pretty schoolboy goals. But Costa Rica are not actually spectacular defensively. I've noticed against... Italy with a stupidly high line that was only not taken advantage of because none of Italy's players apparently can stay onside. England, again, with the same thing. Adam Lallana running through on the right and storage. I mean, you're looking at several breakaways there that should have been punished. And against Uruguay as well, they didn't have any pace over the top. And I agree that Cavani does get a bit of a raw deal sometimes. He gets marginalised into a role that makes him look worse than he is. And because of the price tag, you think, well, he should be able to make that role even better. But actually, that's not that's not possible and that's not fair. The whole biting thing is absolutely preposterous. And um, I actually thought that the ban was... was uh, I think it should have been longer. That's my opinion. Chiellini disagrees, obviously, on his website, um, which I was shocked by, but he's probably just maintaining some strand of professionalism or something like that. I, I, I do think it should have been a longer ban, not that Liverpool fans will agree. What do you think? I completely agree. Um, I would have personally given the chance. I, I, I think it warrants a lifetime ban, in all honesty. Um, having done it once, fine. People lose, you, you know... People lose their heads sometimes, having done it a second time. Okay, you know, sometimes people don't learn from their mistakes. Having done it a third time, it, it, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous to say. I mean, when you first saw it, you went, oh, he's tried to headbutt him. He's not a very nice person. He's, you know, we know what he's like on a football field. But then when it transpired that he'd actually tried to bite another person, but the third time in his career, it, it just seems... It's actually quite worrying. I mean, there's been more discussion this time more than ever about the actual mental fragility of the player, which actually goes quite a long way as to explaining just how serious and just how bizarre an offence it is. Because it's something that... he, he it's, it's almost opportunistic. It's almost as if it snaps inside his head. If you look at all three isolated incidents... And you look at him one after the other, the one at Ajax, the one at Liverpool, and the one for Uruguay. He's not, it's not like he's picked out his man, gone X marks a spot, give this minute, this time, I'm going to bite you. There's not been anything that's gone on previously between the players that much, really. It seems that he gets so frustrated with himself, and he gets almost angry at the performance and what he's been allowed to do on the field, because none of these, none of these instances happen in games where he's playing particularly well. He, he seems to just take out all this frustration. He seems to get in a position where biting somebody else is, is possible and just goes for it. And I don't think that's acceptable as a, as a professional sportsman. And I completely agree. I mean, if you look at some of the other bands that have been given out, Rio Ferdinand got nine months for missing a drugs test. Um, you had, uh, how long did Cantona get for kicking a fan? That was, that was lengthy as well. Was that nine months? Yeah, something like that, seven or nine. Yeah, he got a, a long time. So compared to that four months, and especially when you look at the games in which he's going to miss, it, I think it's only nine international games and a handful of Liverpool games. It might be a similar amount to, to what he missed for the last buying incidents, I think, actually. So the fact that 
four months don't actually affect four month four heavy months of the season. I mean, if it was to if it was to actually go over, say, the Christmas period where he would miss almost half a season for Liverpool, it might be slightly easier to swallow and slightly more understandable. I think the stadium ban and the fact that he's not allowed to train with with his teams anymore, he's he's not even allowed to be in the vicinity of of where they play. Um, shows just how how much of an example FIFA are making out of him. But as I say, I mean, a lengthy ban would would have been you know agreeable. But I think it comes to a point where even though he is one of the best players in the world and he's an extremely lucrative outsource for for um, for commercial campaigns and whatnot, there comes a point where the integrity of the sport has to be made a priority. Another point I made was that I think it's it's imperative for the image of Liverpool as a football club that they issue their own their own punishment on him because I don't think they can be seen after T-shirt gate when he was after the racism scandal and after how again they backed him after the the last biting incident. I don't think they can be seen again to be tolerant of his behaviour. Even if it's merely, uh, you know, a symbolic thing, I think there needs to be some sort of of financial penalty on him, and I think there needs to be some sort of statement made to say that they do not support his actions in any sense, and that they will be launching their own internal investigation, even if it's words to that effect, which are essentially hollow. But as long as they are seen to be publicly damning what he's done, I think that's that's I think that's an unavoidable thing for them now. Um, because if if they're if they're placid to it again, um, I think that that, that almost makes it a, a, a mockery of of the club. To be honest, um, do you agree? Well, I agree with uh, with with the stance you take and, and and your suggested course of action. What worries me is uh, is that Liverpool are currently doing none of it because I'm pretty sure the last I saw checking Twitter was that Liverpool were speaking to a lawyer to see if they could uh, basically manoeuvre their way out of it. And they, when they recapped Suarez's game on their official website, did you see the official, uh, did you see the official recap for him on their website? <laughs> no. They made, they said he completed the 90 minutes and there was no mention of anything. So already we're at the point where they're not, they're not overtly supporting him in public, but they certainly haven't done anywhere, and they're nowhere close to any sort of condemnation that you're calling for, and that I would probably agree they need to uh, they need to take a stance on. So we're probably at the point where we were last time. We're not we're not at t-shirt gate, but it's uh, it's it's not a good start, is it? And I I don't know about a whole uh, lifetime ban. I would have given them the maximum of two years. That's me. Um, but there's a lot of Liverpool fans out there that say, hey, look, why are you punishing us for something that happened on international duty? And I understand their plight because it, this hasn't... Only one of the three <laughs> biting incidents has actually happened in the Liverpool shirt. So he's getting a sort of a, a concurrent punishment for a stacking up of offences, of which only one of these has actually occurred uh, anywhere near the Premier League and anywhere near Liverpool. So it's hard, it's hard to stomach. But this has happened on the world stage in FIFA's like brand spanking new tournament that was going oh so well. The protests were being sort of pushed down. No one was really, it weren't hitting the big news. Everything was going swimmingly. There's lots of goals. It's the best World Cup since, I don't know. And then he ruins it by biting someone and they are pissed off. 
So they are going to do everything they can to annoy them. And the the nine games for Uruguay doesn't sound like a lot, but with the gold, uh, sorry, with the Copper America coming up next year. Now, I'm not sure how, how far through qualification that is, but losing him for the rest of the qualification and perhaps not going there or losing him for some of the games, that is going to hurt them because they're the holders. Yeah. Um, the reason, um, the reason uh, just to qualify it, that I, that I bring Liverpool into it is, is because I have nothing against them as a club, but the reason in which I, I say it is, I view the relationship of a club player representing his club for his international team. I don't think they're two mutually exclusive things. I think that Luis Suarez is so such a representative of Liverpool Football Club now. He's such a clearly an asset of theirs. And whenever you think of him now, you think of Liverpool as a club. The the, the link there is undeniable. The example I would give is, you know, when a, a kid's in trouble at school. And the school give their own punishment to the child, and they've done, they've they've misbehaved, they've done something badly. That child was then to go home, and their parents weren't to give them their own punishment on top of it. You you understand the the comparison I'm making is the yeah. child at school is essentially a representative of the parenting he's received. So if Luis Suarez goes out for Uruguay and bites an individual, that doesn't just reflect badly on Luis Suarez as an individual. It doesn't just reflect badly on the Uruguayan team and, and their football association. It reflects badly on his parent club because whether the link's there or not, overtly, people are going to look at Luis Suarez as Luis Suarez, the Liverpool player, and the three-time biter. So if Liverpool don't come out and say that his behaviour is deplorable, then they're going to come under scrutiny again from other clubs and other fans because they've they've been seen to they've been seen to be almost enablers of of, of that behaviour in the past. But um, to not try and, and do an entire hour on Suarez because I'm sure he's got enough airtime already. Um, we, we've still got probably the probably the story of the tournament so far as 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 a team overachieving in Costa Rica um, because they they were they were written off they were. They were going to get spanked three times and go home with a tail between the legs, and they've done nothing of the sort. Oh yeah, they've been really, they've been really great to watch, and uh, Costa Rican fans have been. Uh, 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 the, the reaction from them says everything. They they thought that they were going to come and play the tournament in the exact same fashion that the USA have just played their three group games, which is sitting deep, grinding it out, playing on the counter, hoping for the best, nail biting finishes every single time, but they haven't. They've seen a lot of the ball. They've shown themselves to be good in possession. They've shown themselves to be aggressive when they need to be. And they have some faults. I don't like that high line, as I alluded to previously. I think any team that doesn't have an off day will take advantage of that and put a few past them. And when you do catch them high up, they do tend to foul you in the channels rather than actually close off the gaps. But if they do end up settling back into that low block, then they're very difficult to beat. And their qualifying record was absolutely fantastic. They went more than 400 minutes without conceding. And the goal that actually beat Kayla Navas in the end was a Clint Dempsey penalty in the snow. Do you remember that blizzard? It was just like, that was the only thing that could beat them. So coming in, they knew they were defensively solid. But some of the players they've got, they've really, really just, they've just blossomed, haven't they? Christian Gamboa on the right wing back, Junior Diaz on the left wing back, and Joel Campbell, fantastic tournament for him. 
really like him. He looks like a clever player. In between the lines, off the last man, running the channels. He's, he's, he's big enough to trouble players. He's quick enough to trouble players. And I know you just look at the goal output and think, right, Joel Campbell, great. But the intricacies of his game are actually really strong. So I'm really intrigued to see what happens with him. I think my my favourite thing that Campbell's actually done all tournament is there was the pass in the first game, was it for the third goal, um, which he, he, he was almost shut out down the right-hand channel Quite far back, I mean, halfway up his up his um, up, up the side of the pitch, and he he just played this curling pass that turned a corner when he hit it, and he hit it, weighted it, and, and played it perfectly to the striker who that the absurd finish to get it in from the angle he did as well. He he hit it perfectly. It was almost like a, a snooker shot in the, yeah. the way he took it, but the way in which he passed that ball showed such vision and such awareness of, of what's around him and who's around him and how to play which would be much more encouraging than just scoring goals because you see players often here and there have a good World Cup and people define that as just having scored more goals than people expected them to have done but the fact that his all-round game is is as intelligent and as developed as, as it's been shown to be is Probably the, the most uh, encouraging thing for me. Um, uh, the last team we've got to talk about is Italy, who should have gone through. They, they should have probably seen out that Uruguay game had they been cleverer about it. Um, had Balotelli taken his chances, uh, Prandelli's fallen on his sword, although the uh, Italian FA want him to, to kind of climb back on the horse because uh, their options to replace him are, are few and far between, in all honesty. Um, what do you what do you make of the Italian situation? Because they've they've arguably they've done much worse than than people imagine them to have done. Really, well, you look at it now: 2010 out in the group stage, 2014 out in the group stage. They won it in 2006, but it's been a long time since that day of glory, and they need to really buck themselves up. I think they were unfortunate to an extent. Um, Obviously, the grievance with the Suarez thing, uh, having Marquisio sent off, and and then obviously Suarez staying on the pitch uh, for for a, for a bit longer. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a great tournament, but they had all of the ingredients there to to make it something a little bit better, and they didn't they just didn't come through in the execution of it. I mean, the Costa Rica high line was there for the taking. Pirlo was dropping balls in under, uh, over the top over and over again, over and over again. Balotelli missed a one-on-one. Uh, you've got, what's his name? Sorry, Insignia uh, can't stay on side when he's looking all the way down the line. They should have won that game. They weren't as bad as perhaps many people believed they, them to be. Against England, they played it perfectly. They ground out a win when England played pretty well, but they showed their experience. And then there's the last game, it all came down to it and it fell apart. But that's what, that's what can happen in tournament football. I had them going through before that game, and then 90 minutes later, it's all over, and they're going home. It's crazy. Yeah, um, I think it's uh, there. Were, there were several disappointing performances from their younger players rather than their older ones. I think Pirlo did exactly as Pirlo always does. Um, I think perhaps his influence on the side was slightly over exaggerated because there's been this this blossoming late into his career into the player we now know him as. Um, and he's because of his performance against England in 2012. He's he's got a much higher profile in this country, mainstream than he used to do. I mean, obviously people people who enjoy the sport know him from the great AC Milan teams of the past, and then the move to Juventus they know him from. But 
obviously he's, he's part of the the national conscience now after after the performance he's had against England. But, yeah, the status I mean, he's got in this country is is now absolutely ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> I, am, I am currently standing five foot from a print of him hanging up on my wall. It's uh, it's a, it's by Stan Chow on Twitter, and he's got a he's got he's a, he's, it's, it's when he had the big beard. It's literally the beard is the moment that he exploded. Without the beard, no one cares. No one cares. Turns up with the beard, amazing. And I've got I've got a picture of him on my wall, so that pretty much just it tells you what it is. I mean, it's. He is now in. A, he's probably bigger here than he is in England, in Italy. <laughs> he's he, he has become some sort of strange cultural phenomenon. Um, but I, I was I was saying the younger players even they, they tried to play him immobile um, with with Balotelli up front, and that didn't really work either. He's not really shown his his form um, in in perhaps the fashion he could have done either, which is a shame. And I think Balotelli's coming for. Much more criticism than perhaps he he deserves. Obviously, he's, he's a man that we know to be to be fragile of mind. He to to he could quite easily be with the the mentality he has. He could quite easily be a Luis Suarez type player where he does ridiculous things. But the fact that he's managed to mature to a level where he doesn't do that as much as he used to do in such a short amount of time, and Luis Suarez hasn't, just shows you what what. A normal, not normal, but you know, somebody who's who's kind of in, in charge of their own emotions, and somebody who isn't is, is able to do. But I think it's overall, it's it's depressing for Italy. Um, having gone out again, I think Prandelli was onto something, uh, especially in Euro two thousand and twelve, with the way he's wanting to play. Um, don't think some of the changes he made with with playing Motta in the second game didn't really work, and and he, you know, there was. Almost slightly too much tinkering. It was almost Yanieri esque with the the way in which he he was changing things. So, I mean, that was that was slightly um, slightly disappointing from that point of view. But um, if we just have a look at um, we've gone through all of the groups now. If we we have a look at the, the knockout games from that side of the round, um, starts off with probably as you say the 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 game of the round with Brazil and Chile. Um, how do you see that one going? Well, I think everybody is going to be wanting Chile to win because they've wowed us so heavily. Um, they've got some fantastic players. They play an amazing system. The manager is is a genius. And they're just, they're just very likable. They work very hard. They're clearly very well drilled. and they Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Have qualities that, that that allow people to become enamoured with them in that way. They also have a match winner or two or three, which is fantastic. But 
I just have this sneaky feeling Brazil are going to grind it out 2-1 or so because, well, just because. I mean, they're the hosts. I don't think they're ready to go out in the round of 16 and I feel like they'll move through the gears enough and they'll just pull something out to defeat Chile. One thing I noticed with Chile when they were qualifying and going through the qualification stages was that they were not able to put games away when they were clearly dominating. This happened against Brazil in the warm-up in November when they were playing. Uh, they lost 2-1, I think it was, so maybe that's where I just got it from. But it's uh, they, they really battered them for like, the opening 20 minutes, but they didn't score. And then all of a sudden, they're 2-0 two, they're down. And Sampaioli's made three or two or three subs by the 30th minute, trying to get the game back into his side's favour. They're very good, but I just don't think they're quite good enough. And I don't think they capitalise on the advantage and the dominance they actually create for themselves. And they sort of end up shooting themselves in the foot. I completely agree with that assessment in all honesty. I think I will be one of those people supporting Chile, but I will also have that that feeling that I don't think Brazil are, are in a position to, to want to go out of this stage. I think the fragile political state of the country will will suffer quite tremendously and uh, the, the scenes on the streets might not be too pretty if they were to, uh, to go out this early into a tournament that they're... Uh, they're desperate to win. Um, the next game, Colombia against Uruguay. Um, I can, without Suarez, uh, with the with the sideshow that's going on with Uruguay now, I can I can only really see Colombia having to now just put their head down and perform in the manner they have done previously. And that that without calling a formality, uh, that's what it should be. Yeah, I mean, you're reluctant to call any game at this stage. Uh... A, a definite win or saying oh, I can't see past but really Colombia here is slated in for the victory uh, even with Suarez they, they they look the stronger side on paper and the stronger side in form uh, without Suarez we've seen Uruguay once without Suarez it was absolutely atrocious they're not going to revert to that they're not going to be they're not going to be as bad as they were against Costa Rica but Colombia are moving from strength to strength They've got three wins in a row. Hamas Rodriguez is irresistible, and I don't think Uruguay can stop them. Okay, and the next one is the Netherlands against Mexico, which, again, seems like the sort of game where there's only one side that seems like they're going to win it, but Mexico have played really well so far. Uh, this might be one one game too far for them, um, but... You know, you never know with the Netherlands. They they do tend to start to to stutter at some point in the tournament. Yeah, I I agree with the sentiment that um, perhaps it's one game too far for Mexico. Uh, they've been tremendous entertainment, uh, but the Dutch have just they've just been grinding out these wins in any which way they need to. Now that's the important thing. They're getting the results. Mexico look look awesome. But do I trust them to grind it out when they're absolutely necessary, when the when the opposition coach hasn't made mistakes? Against Croatia, I think Kovac threw that game away more than Mexico actually won it themselves. I don't think Van Hal's going to make any mistakes this tournament. He's proven himself excellent so far. And, you know, there's just no way past Ron Vlaar. In the same way there's no way past Ron Vlaar, um, Netherlands are going to have quite a task on their hands getting past their chiller in the Mexican goal. Um, so there is always the possibility that if he has another ridiculous day, um, Mexico might be able to get through, but that's that's slightly clutching at straws, I think. Um, the final game from this round is probably the, the one on paper which looks the least attractive with 
Costa Rica playing Greece, but with the fashion again that these two playing, um, I think it'd be fantastic for the Costa Rica story so far this tournament if they were to, to score two or three here and go through into the quarters. Yeah, it'd be great. I'm really interested to see in that game who decides to take the initiative and who doesn't, because quite often you see the pattern. You see the team who are, okay, we're in possession, and the the team that basically concedes possession and sits off. Both like both sides across their, their three games each this tournament have been happy to go, okay, you guys have the ball. We'll see what happens. Both very happy to do that. In this one, one of them's got to take take charge. And I think it's actually going to be that the, the one team that decides to press on and try and create is going to be the one that ends up losing because they're going to get counter-attacked. I just don't know who that's going to be. It's almost reminiscent of, if you remember, Chelsea against Atleti in the Champions League where they both wanted to counteract each other. And in that first leg, it just came down to a... Uh, quite a boring <laughs> spectacle really at some point it was just very tactical and very standoffish so that that could be a game which uh could be our first experience of penalty so far this tournament if nobody really expresses themselves it definitely yeah i mean it, to be honest with you it's got a, it's got a nil nil or a one one written all over it um it, it they're, the, they're the, they've got to be the two most likely scores looking at the, the balance of the play the groups how they, and how they've operated uh, I'd agree. If you're looking for, if you're putting a bet on, uh, not in spirit of Raj, but if you're uh, if you're putting a bet on the tournament, then maybe it might be that this game is the first one to go to penalties. Um, after my Japan shout pre-tournament, I'm retiring from letting anyone know what I think they should be doing with their hard-earned money. <laughs> but, um, I think that, that, that's everything we need to do then, Sam, with, with groups A to D. Um, Maybe if we if we get our act sorted out later on down the line, we can do another one of these and talk about the knockout rounds again in some detail because I've, I've quite enjoyed doing this with you. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, no problem. I'd be happy to do it. I'll probably need about a week's sleep after the tournament, but then uh, then we'll sort something out. I'm um, I'm actually three days after the final. I'm I'm flying out to Spain to go to Benicassim, so uh, rest and recuperation is, is going to have to wait another week for me, unfortunately. Oh, that's great. At least you've got something to look forward to there. I, when I, I the two, the two days before the tournament started, I went park life in Manchester and I was absolutely knackered by the time I got back. So when Brazil, uh, Brazil, Croatia rolled around, I was dreading it. <laughs> well, um, we'll we'll see what state we're in then after the next round because uh, I'm sure we'll have more more rough notes and <laughs> things written down yep. the sides of pieces of paper to try and work our way and transcribe through. Indeed, thanks. Cheers, Sam. Um, so moving on now, we're going to be covering groups E through to H with our old friend, Mr. Rob Brown. How are you doing, Rob? I'm fine. Good. Good to be back. You are you enjoying this orgasm of football that it's we're all brilliant, isn't it? It's Absolutely been all right. Amazing. Been all right. How, how how are you keeping up, Raj? Keeping your notes and your book and everything. You 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 making notes as we go along about the podcast as well. Uh, no, I was just making sure that all my group things were alright. That's that's all I was doing. Is well, your post-it notes, and I'm just imagining a big book with like dicks drawn in it, like a super bad character. <laughs> there's no post-it notes. There's um, there's several different colours being used. Um, oh, just to you know, keep organised and things like that. But um, other than that, it's, it's not too uh, it's not too OCD. Right. Have, well, have you seen a beautiful mind? I have, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet Raj's room's like that. It's got papers all over the wall. 
and crusty tissues all over the floor as well. I do have the affirmation to OCD, everything's in straight lines. Um, I've got a real thing about <laughs> um, perpendicular, uh, things being perpendicular to one another and being in, in straight lines. So everything on my desk is actually blue tacked down so that it's never moved. Um, because oh, if something is if something's <laughs> moved an inch, like if if somebody's touched a DVD or somebody's knocked one of my records or even swapped where they are, I can instantly or, tell. Or, or misplaced one of your Warhammer miniatures. <laughs> it's not actually that nerdy. Um, well, it does sound ridiculous, but just little things that I do notice have been moved. Like the things that I've got on my desk, like uh, my pens and my iPod thing. Got a phone and like Apple TV and that. Like, saying that it's not that nerdy, I do have a, a miniature TARDIS on my desk, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which which lets you know the the sort of man I am behind closed doors. But um, that rarely gets touched anyway. There we go. Um, let's let's move on to Group E. Let's actually talk about some football, shall we? Um, the eventual winners of which were France. Any any surprises there, lads? No, not really. Um... I thought France looked really good, uh, both on paper and in practice. They switched off a bit in the last 10 minutes against Switzerland, but Switzerland basically gave them five goals, and it was so easy before that point. They couldn't really help but switch off, I thought. I thought they were a bit shitty against Ecuador, but that was one of those matches where I I thought all the third group games really were a bit of a letdown in that so many big teams and were either out or going into it knowing that they only needed a draw so they weren't really putting any effort in um, my favourite team from Group B is Switzerland they've always well I went to see Switzerland play in Slovenia once I was on holiday in Slovenia at the time I didn't go specifically to see Switzerland um, and I ended up meeting the whole team and the manager and whatever and having a chat so I've got a bit of a preference for Switzerland and I thought oh the uh, France game where they suffered an injury which meant that they had Senderos and Juru at the back which is a recipe for disaster in anyone's book. I thought they were pretty good. I thought they did okay in the first game against Ecuador. They could have lost in the last minute, but um, I thought that would have been pretty harsh. I thought Ecuador were pretty shitty. Uh, and I was very pleased to see Switzerland get a good result against Honduras and Shakiri finally do something at this World Cup after he's tried and failed quite miserably. It seems like the, the French, for all the talk of kind of Belgium perhaps being a dark horse, I think the French could probably qualify just about in that dark horse bracket um and it seems like they have a really solid balanced side in this world cup that barring any kind of french wobbles as they generally seem to have in the camp and so on and so forth they they're striking a fairly strong case to perhaps emerge as a surprise candidate to win the yeah yeah i definitely go with that i I watched them against jamaica before the tournament and after I watched that, I just I thought this is a team that can do it. I mean, it was only Jamaica and England beat Jamaica, something like six 0 before the 2006 World Cup, and that went turned out disastrously. Um, but they looked so good and so balanced. And when I've been drawing up my brackets and things and doing predictions, you look at all the big teams, and there's just not the same balance. Like Brazil don't have a good striker, and they look wobbly at the back. Argentina have got well, their tactics are terrible, and. Uh, Aside from Messi and Di Maria, no one's trying to create anything. Uh, the Netherlands have got a well, pretty transparent system, which if you do your best to shut down Van Persie and Robin, you might be able to squeak a result out. Whereas France are just strong. I don't see a weakness anywhere. It is just down to them maintaining morale and not fucking everything up, as is their want. 
I'll be honest, a player I've been uh, mightily impressive, and I think a lot of people have, um, is Antoine Griezmann. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't actually know a lot about the the chat before the before the World Cup, but he seems like a bit of a uh, an unearthed gem, as it were. But I think there's a bit of talk about him going to PSG now. Um, do, were any of you sort of familiar with him before before the tournament? Yeah, I'd seen, I first saw him. I've, I've seen quite a bit of him in, in La Liga, and he's been playing really well. Um, I think his selection was only because Ribéry was injured and Nasri wasn't selected. I think that's one of the things that's actually helped France the most um, because they've not, not been pandering to any egos. They've not been been looking for, for some sort of talismanic larger player, which has been England's downfall for several tournaments now. Um, I mean, you can look at the players straight away in, in Gerrard and Rooney that we've, we've sort of tried to make the pillars of a squad um, that don't really need them to be there anymore. And that's been that's been one of our biggest downfalls, and, and France have completely done away with that. I think the reason they're doing so well, um, my theory is at least, uh, is because they, they came into this with little or no uh, desire, to, not desire, but um, any sort of pressure on them to have to win the tournament. They've they've kind of set their sights for Euro 2016 when they've got it at home, and they've recognised they've got a young squad. That young squad's just gone out there with the freedom to be able to play. And the only time they haven't been able to do so is in a game when people have kind of flocked onto how good they are and, and have started talking about them in, in as you say, as, as a dark horse and, and they've started having a bit more pressure on them now. So they've got all the talent in the world. It's whether or not they can they can handle the pressure that comes with putting in performances like they did in the first two games because uh, they've, they've got the team to be able to to do it and um, they've got the tactics so far they, I mean you can literally that, that team almost picks itself and they've left some fantastic young players at home as well I mean Condogby has not gone and he's one of the best young defensive midfielders in, in the world so they, they're kind of uh, spoiled for choice at the minute I think uh Kapu didn't manage to work his way round into a <laughs> dropping into the team did he Raj? No, um, which is a shame for him because he was he was in that squad for quite a lot beforehand. But his injury hit season at Spurs has, has kind of done away with any sort of um, chances of him playing in the World Cup, which I don't imagine he'll have um, he'll have enjoyed too much. Quite just one last thing I wanted to touch on with the French as well. Um, I've, it's been interesting to note that they've kept Koscielny out of the team and have opted for Sarko ahead of that. I mean, you said. Uh, a few days ago, that you actually preferred Sarko to Koscielny. Um, Rob, do you? Is there any particular reason for that? I think he's just got a more rounded skill set, and he's more of a leader. Koscielny's um, like, obviously, the hashtag Guna family loves him to death, and they'll tell anybody who will listen that he's the best defender in the world. But I think he's too much of an individual. He doesn't work well as part of a unit unless he's had twenty games in it. Um, and you don't have 20 games to bed someone in at the World Cup. You have seven and you've got to get them all right. So I think Varane and Sarko are more intelligent, more rounded players who don't need that time. They can just hit the ground running and get on with it. And that's what they've done. Varane looks brilliant as well. He's, he's, he is amazingly complete. I just You just can't see a weakness. And he's even good at bringing the ball out. He played a pass in the uh, 0-0 against Ecuador. That There's a reason why Real Madrid take a punt on you when you're a youngster, isn't there? Yes, um, indeed. Um, but yeah, we... Well, as you're saying, Switzerland have also qualified. Um, who's who's kind of stood out for you most of all about them? Your your 
your fellow roasting boys, Rob. Your post-match <laughs> um, times with the, the Switzerland well, lads. I think uh, Rodriguez from the left is a really important part of their attacking strategy, and he got two assists in the first game, including, well, in the last minute of stoppage time, a lot of people would get the ball in the channel, know that they've got one chance to get a decent cross in and just get it in the mixer and just, just smash it into a good area with, like, without looking. And Rodriguez took his time, measured it up and played a really nice low-weighted pass into the six-yard box for Severich to get across his marker and bury. And I thought that was indicative of the season he's had and the talent he's got. And I also like uh, Irami and Inler in midfield, although they've fallen out in Napoli this season and apparently they're not even on speaking terms anymore. Um, they still did a really good job <clears throat> against Honduras and um, especially in the first game where Ecuador looked like they might uh, sneak it. Um, Barami made a ridiculously good tackle that started the move that uh, won the match. So, I mean, I've, I've taken a lot of stick for saying this to my Argentine friends, but I really think that Switzerland could shock Argentina in the next round Ooh. because... Um, Argentina haven't got a coherent attacking strategy. They've just got two players. They give the ball to Messi and Di Maria and hope something happens. And in the first few games, Aguero hasn't pulled wide. Higuain hasn't moved or done anything. There's no there's no options that Di Maria and Messi have when they get the ball. And if Switzerland can do what they did against Spain in 2010 and put everybody behind the ball and have a, a coherent attacking strategy, which with the likes of Jordan Shakiri, Granit Xhaka, Ricardo Rodriguez and Josip Jermic, they really do have that. So I think if Hitzfeld gets them uh, organised, which he really can, um, and can make sure that they know when to go forward and how and where to, which areas to exploit, they can quite easily shut Higuain, Di Maria and probably Levetsi if Aguero is injured. They can probably easily shut those guys out. It's, you know, shutting out Messi is down near impossible, but if they can get everybody else down uh, and reduce Messi's options, they can quite easily trouble Argentina at the other end. So I wouldn't write off a shock there. Have, have you been surprised at all, Raj, that this is the one group in which the <coughs> South American teams haven't actually dominated? Because, um, I mean, you, you could... No, because they're both shit. Yeah, but, I mean, you could, you could quite conceivably say that, it's, despite the fact they have played exceptionally well, Costa Rica topping the Group D has been a surprise of sorts. So it wouldn't be beyond the realms of a mad nation that Ecuador at least could have qualified ahead of say Switzerland Ecuador were decent to be fair to them they weren't as bad I mean Honduras were, were, were well, they're just a rugby far. team aren't they really they've shown that kind of <laughs> they've, they're, they're, they're reminiscent of, of Pulis's Stoke um, they, they just came and, and kicked people and it's actually quite amusing I mean that penalty that Palacios gave away in the France game where he literally just lined someone up and shoulder charged in the air was <laughs> Was was hilarious. I, I quite enjoyed that, to be fair. Um, but Ecuador have done well in fits and starts, but they've they've been picked off here and there when when they, you know, when they've not been concentrating, and that's just not what the other other South American teams and Concacaf teams have been doing when they've been doing so well. They've all played, and uh, I know it's a stereotype, but they've all played for ninety minutes, and <laughs> Ecuador don't look like they they have it within them to to concentrate for that amount of time, which is what it's taken. It's quite a shame as well to see Antonio Valencia as well, kind of just have a pretty acrimonious end to his tournament with that, that tackle. It was pretty disgraceful. It was quite bad, wasn't it? Yeah. 
I thought he had a pretty poor tournament in all, to be fair. I mean, for a lot of that France game, he was coming inside and letting uh, Juan Carlos Paredes advance down the right flank. And I thought, well, Antonio Valencia is not the guy you want coming into the centre of the pitch. He's, an, he's one of the most out-and-out wingers there is. I mean, he's presumably learned a lot at Man United, but he's not turning into a central midfielder who can dictate the match. He's, you just If you don't get him down the line and get him crossing it, then you're going to get nothing out of him. I thought... Well, arguably, my, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Uh, a lot of my friends in Argentina really thought Ecuador could do something, and they were telling everybody to look out for Jefferson Montero, who's made quite a name for himself. And he was another... Um, didn't really do anything. I mean, he, they put a lot of the ball through him and he just made the wrong decision almost every time. Or Arroyo and Valencia in the middle, Ena Valencia, that is, um, took up really poor positions and gave him no options. I mean, Ena Valencia scored a few goals in the tournament. I'm not sure uh, whether Montero or Antonio Valencia got any assists for him. I think they might have all been um, other other sources. So that shows that their attacking strategy, their plan A, that it was their way to get out of the group, didn't really work. But at the same time, uh, they were Valon Barami's tackle in the first game away from going through. If Barami hadn't been there and the guy had got his shot away, I mean, I don't see how he couldn't have scored. And if he scores that and the other matches go as they do, um, then uh, Switzerland go home and Ecuador go through. So it was a fine margin, but ultimately not good enough. All right. Well, on to Group F. Um, three wins from three games. But, uh, I don't think that paints the full picture of Argentina topping that group. They've 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 made harder work than you would have imagined they perhaps should have done. Um, they've still, you know, I, I, it feels like their their kind of their whole attacking unit hasn't really shown up so far, aside for Lionel Messi, who was the one that most people were doubting at first. Um, you've, you you just said previously that you, you're not so sure they're even going to get past Switzerland, Rob. So, I mean, what what do you think's been there? It's hard to call it a downfall, but what what do you think's been the, the cause of their almost like stuttering start yeah. to the tournament? Well, if listeners have enough time, I've written a piece about it on my blog, which is robbro7.com. Um, basically, I think that however they've lined up, their system has been terrible. And they're playing what in the 90s was called a broken team, where you have one defensive unit at one end and one attacking unit at the other, and the midfield's kind of an afterthought. And they're playing Mascherano and Gago, who are both out-and-out defensive midfielders. I mean, Gago's a bit more creative with his passing, but he's not going to get into attacking positions. He's not going to carry the ball. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to get the ball and pass it to one of the wing-backs or to Messi. And they've just been so easy to shut down. I mean, Higuain and Aguero have done absolutely nothing. I mean, Aguero's been hampered by injury. Higuain's just been abysmal. And whenever the the ball goes forward, you know it's going to get to Messi. And... Iran, I mean, even Iran, I mean, Carlos Kiroz has shut out Messi before um, when he was Man United assistant manager in 2008. Gary Neville recently said that he never saw more uh, detailed training sessions than before Man United played Barcelona that season when Kiroz drew the pitch up into grids and drilled them for maybe two weeks on where to be when Messi had the ball. And he clearly did the same before the Iran game. Uh, whenever Messi got the ball, Iran were perfectly positioned until that very, very last minute when they all thought they'd finally done it and switched off. Um, but that having said that, Iran were so close to scoring two or three goals and maybe should have had a penalty. So, I mean, I, it's just so easy to play against Argentina at the moment if you've got the quality to um, bridge defence and attack. If you can just sit behind the ball, then all you're having to do is shut down two players. And that's it. I mean, anyone can do that. It doesn't matter if it's Messi and Di Maria. Two versus 11 
doesn't work. And if you can go forward on the break like Switzerland and any, well, any other good team can, then I don't see Argentina as being any prospect to worry about at all. It's just been really, really bad. Well, dare I say it, Iran actually looked like the better team for most of that game against yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. That was what was so surprising. I mean, it, if you were saying... I mean, you could have drawn up uh, the similarities between that Man United performance in the Champions League semi-final in 2007-8, and it would have been almost identical. I mean, you, you wouldn't have known the difference by the names in the back of the shirts. I mean, they, they shut them out perfectly, limited their efforts to long ranges, of which Messi buried one. I mean, he... You know, not to go over the same kind of superlatives that every other news outlet has done, but he's a special player, Lionel Messi. Unbelievable. I mean, I've been really happy that he's done it um, because I'm sick and tired of people in Argentina saying he's not as good as Maradona when, in my opinion, he's better. Um, and I hope he can carry it on. I mean, I don't, I don't see how. I hope against hope that he can carry it on and win the World Cup and at least raise himself to Maradona's level in their eyes. Something that really, really annoyed me after the Iran game. Uh, I was talking to some Argentine friends and they were all saying, this is the match where we needed Tevez. And I was like, oh, just just fuck off. <laughs> it's been so long now since Tevez did anything good for the national team at all. And still, um, I mean, he, they have this thing where he's the players, uh, uh, the people's player and he's always the guy they want to represent their country because he's a, he's a guy from the slums. He's a hard worker. He's kind of their Rooney, is he, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And... With every passing game, you think and Messi's goals, you think the talk, the uh, debate's over, and yet there are still people going to matches with Tevez flags and Tevez masks. And after the Iran game, everyone was saying, "If we just had Tevez, it would have been three or four nil." It's just, nah, it's exasperating. I just hope Messi can carry on going. Yeah, as you were talking about, kind of the lack of creativity in the centre of the park for them, um, I've been surprised that they haven't been playing Enzo Perez at all. Because, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the guys from talking to the doll, the Benfica lads have. They they kind of earmarked him as one of their best players this season and a real mm. kind of creative driving force behind a lot of their success. Yeah, I think going forward, they have to include Enzo Perez or Lucas Bigley, simply because playing Mascherano and Gago at this level, unless you're going to be on the back foot or drawing teams out as they were in qualifying, um, it's just a waste of time. If, you're gonna, if everyone's going to park the bus against you, you don't need two defensive midfielders who aren't going to try and score or create anything. So I think they have, going forward... If, if teams at this level have figured out that all they have to do is sit back and Argentina basically can't score, then they have to drop Gago or well, they're going to drop Mascherano. So it has to be Gago. And I think they have to bring in Perez or Biglia. The, the thing about Argentina is they still have that potential. If they can just find a bit of cohesion, they could they could yeah. still really kick into gear and, and conceivably win the World Cup. It, it still wouldn't be, again, that far off an idea to imagine them winning the World Cup. No, no, that's 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 perfectly accurate. If if everything falls into place and they start, if the movement comes together and teams get drawn out, then Argentina will beat them. There's no doubt about that. I just think um, people enough people have cottoned on now that all you need to do is sit back and you can get in behind quite easily and you haven't got to worry about conceding goals. I mean, yeah, if it clicks into place and Messi starts hitting his best, then there's no stopping them. But it's just whether that happens. Um, Nigeria coming second, I suppose on paper that just about makes sense, but it, it's a surprise that Bosnia weren't quite as a surprise element as people were almost hoping that they would be. Um, I mean, are you surprised at all, Raji, that uh, Nigeria qualified ahead of them? 
Um, not given the performances, I think Nigeria were much more expressive and played in a similar manner to which they usually do. I think Bosnia fell into the trap of qualifying with all the freedom in the world and, and playing a certain system in, in qualification and being attacking and making Dzeko and Pjanic the, the centre points of their team there. But when they got to the World Cup, and especially when your first game is Argentina in the Maracanã, they, they kind of closed shop and were, were almost happy to have a, of a draw there, which went out of the, the window a few minutes in when somebody kicked in their own net. And uh, from then on in, because it's set up in, in, a, in a system which was foreign to them, being so defensive, when they've got so many players available to them who can carry the ball, who can play ball nicely, and they can attack, especially around the box with with, with Pjanic and playing them into Dzeko's feet who can hold it up. They've got the players available to really hurt defences and keep the ball in, in zones which will which will hurt hurt other teams. And they just didn't do any of that. Um, they didn't do any of it until the, their third game when they were already out. I mean, it made it made no sense as to, to why they would abandon it. I think it would have been... Because it was such a large event for them culturally and for their nation, I think they were so scared of, of, of it being a, a failure in terms of them getting beaten heavily every time that they decided to be more conservative and just... Uh, uh, for want of a better phrase, enjoy the occasion. They kind of they kind of took it at that rather than going, let's play to our strength and let's do what we did in qualification because they didn't they didn't really let themselves off a leash too much, which I think is a, is a massive shame because they could have beaten um, Nigeria and they, they could have you know they could have beaten Iran even more heavily had they done that, but. As I say, the only time they allowed themselves any sort of freedom was in the last game when they were already out. I don't know. I kind of see your point, but uh, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that they really should have won the Nigeria game as it was anyway. I mean, Jekyll had a perfectly good goal disallowed for offside and missed an absolute shitload of chances. So, I mean, in, an, in another world, he takes that one at the end in Argentina. Uh, Argentina. Bosnia and Herzegovina progress anyway. I mean, I, I take your point about them changing system unnecessarily. But uh, I think they, well, there's only one point in it. I think they could have gone through anyway. And uh, what's with your uh, your love of Victor and Yemma, Raj? You, you, I saw you waxing lyrical about him on on Twitter. Um, he's fantastic. Um, as, I mean, as a player or a specimen? It's both. <laughs> I mean, he's for me. He's, I, I put him as my favourite goalkeeper of the group stages purely because he kept two clean sheets in the first two games um, making some fantastic saves but he's, he's, there's often a, a misconception about goalkeeping that all it is is about shot stopping and um, keeping clean sheets and if you boil it down that's probably what it is but it's um, it's almost like you're a defensive coordinator when you're a goalkeeper you see the very best of them you see the highest elite you see Courtois Czech um Neuer, Loris, what they're constantly doing is they're the they're the loudest and they're they're the player on the pitch that talks the most. I mean, especially with someone like Loris who's got such a young defence ahead of him and, and same with Enyema. They're experienced people who know not only their job, what they're doing inside their goal, but they know where their defence has to be and what their defence has to be doing in order to make their job um their job as easy as possible and allow them to make the saves they can. 
and he does that constantly. I mean, he parades his area really well. He claim, comes and claims crosses. His his decision making is is right up there. He knows exactly what he's doing, and it's something that can't be stressed enough about how important that is. I mean, if we if we look at closer to home and look at Gomez, who we've just released this summer at Tottenham, do we have to? He's he's a well, yeah, because. He's probably one of the greatest shot, single shot stoppers I've ever seen. That's not an exaggeration. The man was often yeah, he was, he was some of the, the shots. Human that Arsenal game where we beat them two one was a point of note. Exactly, some there's some saves that he made that I don't think most of the keepers in the world could, just because he was so acrobatic when he wanted to be. But because his the rest of his game was so weak, he wasn't. He never looked like he was able to organise a defence. He never looked like he was able to make decisions at the right time and time. And he made, and he made, and he made it detracted from what he was actually good at. Whereas players like Enyema are the complete package. And Nigeria have been as good defensively because they have somebody that's that much of a leader and that experienced in their goal. Uh, I think that's the reason that I've enjoyed him the most is, is just because I can see what he's doing outside of just saving shots again another player um, that I wasn't fully aware of before the tournament um, who seems to play pretty well especially in the Argentina game was Ahmed Musa um, of CSKA CSKA it's a mouthful Moscow um, he's he's looked pretty decent yeah he's he's one of those um, one of those strikers is going to be a handful just because he's so Pacey, he's, he tries so many shots and um, he's very good at dropping in between the lines in terms of he, he picks up the ball in positions where strikers normally don't and then he's happy to carry it, um, which isn't something we've really seen from, from many forwards this tournament. It's not been really a tournament of forwards, thinking about it now. It's been a tournament of good midfielders and good fullbacks and, and forwards have capitalised from that, but there have been no real outstanding forward displays on their own, apart from probably Messi. Um, the rest of them have, have replied on, uh, replied, uh, relied on having good service. And um, he's one of the very few that's kind of made his own chances and, and you know, taken them when they've come. I mean, if you're talking about the two goals he scored in the Argentina game, they were both instinctive, fantastic finishers. The way he checked back and curled it in for the first one, um, straight after going behind was... It's fantastic, and then the second one where he kind of gave the keeper the eyes and, and put it in the opposite corner as to where you'd expect him to, and did it with so much confidence that it was you know it wasn't what you were expecting to see from him was was really pleasant. So, I mean, when you've got him playing, and the only option you've got off the bench is Shola Ramiobi, you, you really <laughs> need him to be. You really need him to be uh, firing on all cylinders. First Nigerian to score more than one goal in a World Cup game as well. There you go. Bloody hell. Surprising. Yeah. Um, let's move. I mean, do you, Iran, anything to offer anyone? No? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> go on, I, 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 I mean, Iran were my sweepstake team, as you well know. I made a joke before and saying that the racist that you are, you'd have given me them as a, as a cheat, and <laughs> it turned yeah. out anywhere. Even, even though it was a, a free process, it, I did get them, which was fairly amusing. But they were better than you expected them to be. Um, I mean, the way in which they played against Argentina, they could have won that game by more than a few goals. Um, they were exceptional. I mean, their goalkeeper as well is 
he's you know he's not the best, but he's quite a, a hunky looking man. Um, he's been one of my favourites. He's got that slick back hair, and um, you know it's a shame they've gone out because they have played a lot better than expected, and it's just been quality in the final third that's let them down, which is a shame because any anything away from that they've they've done what other surprising teams like Costa Rica have done and, and tried their best and played as hard as they can. They just didn't have the you know that extra bit of quality that they um that they re- require. Anything on your side, Rob? Um, I basically agree. I think uh, I think the striker is called Reza Gajanajad. He had God knows how many chances to score in this tournament, and he finally got one um, in the eighty-second minute of the Bosnia game. Um, and he should have had two or three against uh, against Argentina. And a couple of a couple really snapshots came his way against Iran, uh, against Nigeria. And it's harsh to pin it on one player, especially as their uh, overarching strategy was so defensive. Um, who knows what could have happened if he'd taken his chances? They could be in the second round. It's a shame. There you go. Let's, yeah. uh, and just a, a quick shout out to Iran Nigeria as well, which is quite comfortably the worst game so far in this tournament. <laughs> Um, you reckon that was that was just yeah. Um, I mean, I've watched every single of all of them, and they've been redeeming qualities for some of the other nil nils. But that one, both teams were were more than happy to to just sit. I think. I mean, there was, as you say, there was the odd snapshot, but other than that, I think there was no desire from either team to to try and win anything at all. I thought Japan Greece was worse. I've got to say. That was bad. I mean, it, it, partly because it was a late kickoff and it went on into the night, but also because Greece, well, Greece had no desire to score after they'd lost their, they had their man sent off halfway through the first half. I think it was halfway through the first half. And then Japan's strategy after that was simply to cross the ball all night until they finally scored, completely failing to yeah, understand that but... Greece's, Greece's strength is in the air, in their own box. And if you cross it to Greece... You're never going to score, and I found it so every annoying. Japanese player is short. Yeah, a midget with no strength at all. I mean, they got Kagawa and Honda and Okazaki up front, and you'd think between the three of those they could combine and produce something. But no, they just sent it out wide to the fullbacks and crossed it in all night. And I thought it was awful. Oh, there we go. Um, let's move on to Group G, which was well topped by the the Furyland. That's probably I shouldn't say that, should I? Um, <laughs> Yeah, banter. I need to have my banter klaxon on hand, jingoism and all that other shite. But Germany, yeah, they've uh, again another side that have looked pretty solid, looked pretty decent. Um, but it's it's also seen the downfall of Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo um, in what's probably probably. Well, I I don't know. Do you think it'll be his last World Cup? No, no, well, um, no. He's he's got plenty of time left in him. Um, for me, I don't think he'll this he'll allow this to be his last World Cup um, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I think it was a massive shame for him just how injured he was and just how much he he felt he he was required to play. I mean, even on one leg, he was he was their best player for for large part. He probably shouldn't uh, have been playing, like, really, should he? Like, yeah. I don't think he should have been playing in the slightest. To be honest, um, his freedom of movement and things like that. I think he he had about five minutes across each game where he could stretch his legs in the fashion where used to seeing, but the rest of it, he was so conserved and so you could tell that he was holding himself back to such an extent. It was 
quite um, sad to see, really, because you you watch him all season just being the arrogant person that he is, just flying past people and, and taking shots whenever he can. And he, he just couldn't do that, um, which was a shame. I mean, he, he had that knee strapped up so so heavily. So heavily. Yeah, um, I'm not actually choking up. I had someone actually caught in my throat. I don't <laughs> like Ronaldo that I much. I think it's Ronaldo's <laughs> knob. <laughs> but um, as I say, um, I mean, he's, he produced probably two of the two of the best moments in that group anyway. There was that bit in um, the USA game where there was just some footwork on the touchline where he um, he did a couple of like little flicks in between his legs, almost like these... Cryf turns going forward where he just kind of jumped across the ball and took out about three defenders doing that and then danced around the ball and laid off a back heel. And that was just 30 seconds where he just showed he was on a different level to everybody else because there was a good three or four players around him that just couldn't get close to him. And then there was a cross deep in that game where he literally, the only foot that's available, I mean, when's the last time you saw Ronaldo pick the ball up deep on the right wing? shows you just how injured he was that he wasn't in the box himself. He, you know, he was almost disgusted with himself to find himself in that position. But uh, the cross he put in was just inch perfect. It was it was it was better than the goal itself, that cross. It was just one of those assists that was all about the person who'd set it up rather than the person who scored it. It was fantastic. Phenomenal. I think that's uh, the kind of thing that you still would probably, despite all the comparisons that are drawn between them, it's the sort of thing I would still struggle to see Gareth Bale probably ever do across like that. And that's probably what, yeah, I, I, I think I maybe have been at fault for getting ahead of myself about what Gareth Bale's potential is. Um, and he is, you know, obviously a, a sublime talent, but kind of that that kind of crossing and that sort of vision that Ronaldo has, I think is what really separates him from the likes of kind of Bale, Robin, etc among other things. Um, however, the USA, they uh, they finished ahead of Portugal. and did, It's kind of hard to argue with that, really. They've actually looked like a really decent team, as it were. They might not be individually the strongest side there, but as a team, they've they've, they've played very well, and Klinsman seems to have a, a pretty well-drilled unit there. Yeah, I'd go with that. They, they seem like a sort of... They've got that sort of... Um... Lower league Premier uh, Premier League team where they just kind of have a really compact, hard to beat unit, and then look to see what they can do on the break. There's no, it doesn't seem that they've got a great deal of uh, forethought or movement plan. They just go with it and see what happens. I think they'll probably go at home after the next game, but it's a success to see them get out of the group, and they've definitely earned it. Um, I think the problem for them has been losing Josie Altador as. Bizarre as that sentence may sound. <laughs> what, um, jo- Josie Altador, one of the planet's most deadly strikers. God, that's me, a terrible website, isn't it? Let me just hang on one second. I just <laughs> I need to I need to read some excerpts from this. For anyone that hasn't yet seen this, um, Josie Altador has his own personal website, um, upon which he has one of the most I, I can't even think of a word for it, just the most baffling personal biographies. Where is it? It's under uh, so we've got josiealtador.com. Meet Josie. All right, here we go. Um, here's just here's just some of the some of the excerpts from it. There's some some pretty phenomenal ones here. Um, so yeah, so it's, it starts off, you know, blah 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 blah. Josie Altidore, he played here, he played there. Um, 
then we have I'll get there, don't worry. Oh, I think I think it's actually been changed. Oh no. Yeah, I think he's I think he's actually realised that people are taking the piss out of it and a lot of the Oh dear, yeah, I think where is it? Yeah, it's it's actually been edited. His uh his 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 personal bio has been edited. Um essentially oh. it just had all these uh, all these lines in it about him being I think he was described as one of the planet's most deadly goal scorers, one of the world's most feared strikers, um, and one of the one of the I think it was one of the leading forward men of all time, or something oh. just completely insane like that. But yeah, <laughs> it's all been edited. It's all been taken out. Wow. Parasocial media. Parasocial media. Anyway, back to your point, Rob. Sorry about that. Yeah, I mean they're they're playing Clint Dempsey as a lone striker now, and I think. I mean, it's hard to define what his role actually is besides a goal scorer in any team, but he's certainly not a lone striker. And given the US have spent a lot of their time behind the ball, I mean, in the Ghana game, they won. I don't know if they had any shots that they didn't score. They didn't do anything apart from defend. Ghana had the ball for the whole game, pretty much. Um, Both their goals against Portugal came from, well, one of them was perhaps the long-range striker of the tournament so far from Jermaine Jones, which I think might have been faster than the speed of sound. And then Dempsey bundling it in from a yard with his crotch. I mean, they haven't done anything constructive football-wise at all. They've just got a, pulled goals out of nowhere. Um, and with Dempsey up front, you kind of have to do that because you can't put 10 men behind the ball and then kick it long to him and wait for him to hold it up while everybody else comes because you can't do that. And put a lot through uh, Fabian Johnson on the right and Graham Zusi. But other than that, going forward, they don't seem to have much. They don't use Dempsey the way that they can use Altidore and I think even though they've done really well to get out of the group and their defensive resilience has more than deserved it they're not going to go any further and yeah I well I'd actually called out Clint Dempsey this week and was rounded on by the uh the international Liverpool fans that are the uh the soccer bros the American soccer bros as they're calling themselves on Twitter I don't think they're calling themselves that I think that's the, the disparaging name that has been uh, given to them but I, I, I think Clint does have a habit of disappearing still in games and something we saw in his time at Spurs as well he's he's, he's definitely a good player and he, he gives it his all but I don't think he's quite as good as uh, the, the US hype machine would have you believe um, and definitely not as good as Theodore Golzevelt would have you believe, Raj. You, you were quite a fan of that yesterday, weren't you? <laughs> to be quite honest, this whole USA enjoying football thing was quite a laugh at the start of it. And, you know, well done for getting involved with a sport that the rest of us have known about for years. <laughs> but uh, it's getting too far now. Um, the, that video they released of a man dressed as a former president singing that stupid song. What is it? I believe that we can yeah. win. Yeah. We will um, win. Was quite possibly the most American thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, and then you know they're all getting involved, watching it more than they're watching other sports, which the rest of have been doing for God knows how many years. Um, they were <laughs> they started it out and they were quite endearing with you know how passionate they were and it was nice to have them there and whatnot. But when it came to the Germany game and they were like because they knew that they could go through and, and stuff like that. It just became unbearable. I mean, it was so unendearing just how overly, overzealous 
everything was about them. I mean, I think that's just American culture in, in any fashion. Um, I'm sorry to offend anyone, but they were just, you know, it was so painfully overdone. It was so I've got to say, to, to, to add a bit of balance um, to it, the English are equally as guilty of that as well, we have to say. Like, I would take the England band playing, and I told you this before, I would take the England band playing the theme of um, The Great Escape out of tune on their brass band. They can do that all day for 90 minutes, and that would still be less annoying than anything the Americans have done for the past week. Oh, oh mm-hmm. no, I can't, I can't it's go been, with that. I can't, no I, it's hard, mate. It's the, the England supporters <laughs> band is, as I described it the other day, ear cancer. Like, it's just... <laughs> But would but would we put up a man if if a man went dressed as St George would he get put up on the internet as some sort of cultural leader? I mean, uh, the fact that Tottenham have now picked up on this man is apparently a fan of. Oh, ours. just just um, just ignore the Tottenham Twitter account. Like it's it's so cringeworthy. It's just such a disappointing facet of the game that some man who's gone dressed as a whopper is now some sort of cultural icon. I'm not happy with it at all. I wanted, you know. Um, I wanted Germany to beat USA by a cricket score, and that's not a cultural reference they're going to get because that's yet again another sport they've not quite clocked on with yet. But um, oh, no, actually, in oh, in was... in, uh, in South Central LA, um, there's actually there's a cricket project that's that's actually rehabilitating young offenders. It's an interesting interesting story. You should read about it, mate. They're going to be touring. I think they are going to tour or will be touring the UK soon, playing against local teams and like village team stuff. Anyway, I've gone on a tangent, but it's definitely an interesting story. Read up on it. Cricket, Young Offenders, South Central Los Angeles. Anyway, back That's to what you were saying. Cool. No, I was just having a rant about how much I disliked the, the way the Americans have treated the World Cup. But yeah, um, I mean, footballing more than them as supporters. Um, they've been functional. Um, they've, you know, they've, they've won the games they should have done. Um I think Portugal, um, they, they should have seen that game out. I think it was naive of them to allow them to, to concede so late when uh, Portugal were, were largely terrible for that game. Uh, they shouldn't have done that. They should have won. And they should have had the opportunity to try and win the group if they had. And um, the, the, who else did they beat? They beat Ghana, um, which given that they're more interested in fighting each other and running around the hotel half naked and Slapping each other is a given. Yeah, mate, you're um, going to get so many uh, pelters on Twitter for this. You realise that? I really don't care. <laughs> I really don't. Well, it's care. it's. Uh, it's I, not... I've got to say, I don't know if either of you have read it yet, but it seems that not everyone in the United States of America is that behind Team USA. US oh, can we not do this? MNT. Have you have you read it, Rob? The Clarion Ledger. Can we, can we not do it? And Coulter. It's so bad. It's Ann Coulter's article. The the American. The American kid, yeah. Hopkins. Oh dear God! I don't want to give her any more attention than she's already had. It's all, just awful. All, all, all I'll say about it, guys, if anyone does want to read it, it's on the Clarion Ledger. Um, it's by a lady called Ann Coulter. Um, the headline is: "A growing interest in soccer is a sign of our nation's moral decay." There you go. Um, it's one of the most disgusting, jingoistic, ill-informed, appalling pieces of just writing that will ever enter enter your life it's it's horrible and it's awful and yeah read it <laughs> but yeah um 
we'll move on to the next group because we've yeah. Can we go. Can we just give a quick shout out go. to the uh, Ghanaian centre back John Boy, who in the process of this tournament <laughs> uh, broke Clint Dempsey's nose, smashed <laughs> open Thomas Muller's cheekbone, gave Clint Dempsey a goal, and then scored an own goal in the last match. Half an hour before which he was pictured kissing a stack of money while walking around the hotel. <laughs> Three what are like hundred thousand pounds. Hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It's a man living life though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Apparently Ghana Ghana were gonna refuse to play the game unless they got that money before. So was it the Ghanaian president had it flown in especially from the country? Yeah. Uh, like shipped over and then they had it driven and it was like some sort of Seen out of a, a bank heist film, as they were all handed stacks of money because they were they didn't they didn't trust their government and their football association enough to pay them it in cat in in like a bank transfer as most people would. They um they told them that they would take nothing less than a wadge of cash, which um you know was was odd now, to say I the think least. On the day of the match yesterday, uh, Sleeman Tarian came from Prince Boateng. Verbally and physically assaulted the Ghanaian FA and were sent home. I thought they had a punch up with one another. Uh, they, they, one of, I, I think, think they, they, they might have been involved uh, okay. with each other afterwards, but I think they definitely had some, some to do with the head of the football association. I think wasn't wasn't there, wasn't there point though that these guys, the FA guys, are getting these huge bonuses for the back of their work that isn't being distributed accordingly? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. You beat the guy up on the last day of the World Cup. Or your last day. What could be your last day of the World Cup? They did that, though, didn't they? Sorry? They did it, though. So, mm-hmm. what, what do you know, Rob Brown? About what? About being a Ghanaian footballer. Oh, less than nothing. Obviously. <laughs> um, anyway, um, H. What's uh, Belgium top tip? The dark horses that aren't really dark horses. Say again, I didn't get that. No, um, just yeah. Raj, Raj, you still there? I am. Yeah. Okay. I was just um. Only in the room. You know. Hang on one sec, mate. Group H. Group Group H isn't something that we really need to give that much airtime to. Really, it's been um been one group too far. Really, um, the, the games haven't been too great um i think there was one outstanding performance by algeria um who have been who have been probably the best african side in the tournament um so far um other than that belgium have been belgium have been really professional i think what people expected from them was them to to be blowing teams away because they've got so many recognizable names rather than lots of talent they've got names so they've got people that will know of in this country um, which has kind of propelled their status more than anything else because other countries, you know, like the Swiss and things like that, the players like Shakiri and Rodriguez aren't aren't people that most people are going to know of but because Belgium have got so many names and faces you're going to be recognising from match of the day every Saturday um, they've kind of been propelled to a level which uh, may be slightly artificial but um, the way in which they've gone about it I think has actually been not too bad, given that it's their first World Cup for so many years and they've got, you know, so many first-time participants and a first-time manager and whatnot. Um, they did really well to, to come back against Algeria. Um, that looked like not happening. Gave way and, uh, a 
absurd penalty by Jan Bertongen. Uh, it's one of those things we've got used to seeing now this season at Tottenham where he kind of switched off and tried to rectify it by committing a foul. Um, and as I say, they, they did really well to, to come back late in that game. Uh, when they played Russia, again, Russia, the way in which Russia plays is a Capello side, so they're all about containment and then expressing themselves on the break when they feel that they get the opportunity. However, Belgium never gave the opportunity to break against them. So they they kind of just sat behind the ball and, and contained them as much as possible. But it was towards the end of the game where I think it was Eden Hazard probably showed his best form of the tournament so far, got hold of the ball a lot more and affected it a lot more that, that they scored late on there as well. And then the game against South Korea was much the same in that they, they kind of measured themselves. And there's that old cliche about growing into the tournament, which I think could apply here because they've played three sides so far that have not been anywhere as close to being as adventurous against them as perhaps the USA will be in, in the knockout round. Because I think what the USA will do is, in the same way they were naive against Portugal, uh, when they conceded, was I think they will try and attack them um, far too wholeheartedly without concerning themselves with what's going on behind them. I think if if players like Beckerman and is it Jones yeah. in the middle, yeah. if they're not on the top of their game, then they're likely to get picked off because Belgium are now in a position where they know what their strong point is and that's playing on the break. And if they are then allowed to do that against a team that don't concentrate against them as heavily defensively as the other ones have done, they now have the confidence and, and sort of the momentum to go and win that uh, they were lacking before. So I think I think taking a piss out of them too much just because they haven't been winning each game 6-0 might be knee-jerking completely the other way. Um, I do think they'll, they'll beat USA. Um, I think it'll probably be a high-scoring game, but I just think that um, unless Klinsman completely gets his tactics right and, and he plays out from the back and he, he kind of concentrates on having a deeper midfield band uh, in a fashion that he hasn't done so far, um, I can't see Belgium not having it within them to just break effectively against them, to be honest. Apart from John Boy, <coughs> the Ghanaian centre-back we were just talking about, can't think of anyone who's had a worse World Cup than Romelu Lukaku. I think he's just been absolutely dreadful and he's lost his place to Divock Origi, who I know, I knew absolutely nothing about before this tournament. Oh, but apparently the ITKs did to know that Spurs have been in talks with him. You know, is that the is, case? Oh, no, it's not absolute bollocks. It's just, <laughs> a, it's just a typical unheard of striker scores goal, yeah. let's link to Spurs. It was. His... They've already been linked to uh, Enna Valencia as well. <laughs> really? Christ. That goal, his winner against... Was it Russia? Um, yeah. It was his eighth professional goal. And everyone's been going on about Lukaku, for his age, has scored more goals than Messi, Ronaldo, Rooney, everybody had at that age. But he's been so bad at this tournament. It's been untrue. His... Rod, Roger Baines, you called me an idiot earlier on in the season when I said I would rather have Wilfred Boney than Lukaku. I, I, I still think that's a harsh summation of that of that kind of axis. Have you seen Wilfred Bonney this time? He has been. Because he's essentially been a fat version of uh, Wolf, uh, of Lukaku. I don't know. To be honest, they've both been as bad as each no, other. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with that. Uh, Bonney's got, what, I mean, he's got a couple he of had, goals. There was one game where, there was not, there was one game where I think it was against Japan. Yeah. 
where in the first half he could have scored six. Yeah, yeah. And that's not. I've, I've genuinely, I've got a note where it says Wolfram Bonnie should have scored six. Yeah. And they were so easy, and he should have been scoring each and every one of them, and he couldn't. Do you know what's worse? He scored later on in the game. Do you know what's worse than not scoring six goals when you've had six chances? Not having any chances at all. Like he's got Eden Hazard, uh, Dries Mertens, all these really ridiculously creative wide men, and he hasn't had a sh- shot. He's just done absolutely nothing. It's just not even... Com- I see your point, and I do think Barney is underperformed, but he's still got... Didn't he get the winner in the last in the Ivory Coast last game, and he did score in that Greece game eventually? Was it a oh, Japan game? Eventually. But, I mean, Lukaku's just had one... He got one and a half games, and then was subbed, and he shouted everybody on his way off, and sat down, and continued yelling at the manager. And it's just, well, what have you done? <laughs> he's been on that pitch with I mean he hasn't had much space to work with and perhaps that's something that doesn't really play into his hands I mean, we've seen how well he's done on the counter with West Brom and Everton but he's just shown less than nothing it's just unbelievable do you uh, Rog can you can, do you think Belgium have got enough in them to, to go all the way oh no they're not going to win the tournament by any stretch of the imagination perhaps the Euros coming up no, I think I think France are probably going to win the Euros. To be honest, um, looking ahead, um, depends what Spain do with readjusting their national setup between then and now um, as well. But um, I don't think this is Belgium's tournament. I think they've, they'll probably get through to the quarterfinals, and I think a quarterfinal place for a team that's been out of the tournament for so long, um, for for as I say, uh, in the situation they are, where they, they've got so many unknown factors to. To themselves uh, in tournament football is is um, probably par for the course. They'll they'll be pleased with a quarter final. I think if they if they expected anything more than that, then they've um, they've got far too caught up in their own hype, which uh, is a dangerous thing to do. Uh, a quarter final for for Belgium seems about right. To be honest, um, I don't think they they deserve anything more than that or anything less. They've they, they'll probably get there and be happy with it. Anything to add on that, Rob? No, I think he's. Pretty much spot on. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, there we go. There's our little. Uh, oh no! One other thing I want to talk on. about Group H in Group H. Okay, so a few of my friends in uh, Argentina are uh, sort of uh, they're not news journalists, but they are football writers, I guess. And they're going around Brazil, touring around. I think they've been to every host city so far, and either watched the game in the fan parks and written about it, or gone to the actual games. And one of the games they got tickets for was uh, South Korea versus Algeria. And they got one spare and they invited another of our mates who, li- who didn't go with them, who stayed in Buenos Aires. And he made a 34-hour round trip to join them for that game. And oh, yeah. In a car by himself. And they got... Well, it wasn't a great quality game, but it was fucking brilliant, wasn't it? It was, it was couldn't take your eyes off it because it was just so ridiculous. It was like, I don't know, it was like a League One playoff final where they decided that you, know, you had to score at least three to go th- to stand a chance of winning it. Right? There was some bizarre rule in play where you had to score three goals to even get a chance of a result. It was ridiculous, and I thought, um, well, I kind of had a, a hunch that was coming because. Um, it just seemed weird that my mate would go for 34 hours not, and not see an, an amazing game. But uh, there was another moment in that where I think it was Rafik Halici headed in, was it a corner for the second Algerian goal? 
And I thought, um, this celebrations, Colombia celebrations got a load of hype because they're all dancing and shit. But Halichi's was like a proper Tardelli just sprinting off by himself, yelling into the camera. It was brilliant. It was a brilliant moment in a brilliant game. And, uh, yeah, I was really pleased that my mates still went and got to see that. Because all before, they were all saying, of all the fucking games, like we've got a 34-hour round trip on my mates' hands to watch South Korea versus Algeria. <laughs> who, who in their right mind would do that? And they got one of the games of the tournament. There you go. It's quite, it's quite a story, Rob. Are you, are you pretty jealous you're not out there at the moment, I'm imagining? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I've been looking at flights to go back out there, especially if uh, Argentina get close, but it's uh, pretty expensive. A lot more expensive, especially with all the um, with all the paternity money that you're going to have to, <laughs> to yeah. pay in when you go back to yeah. South America. A bit uh, worried that I've just disclosed my intention to return in public because now people are going to start chasing me for that money. Baby daddy. So if we're to look at the the kind of the fixtures coming up out of these uh, out of these games, we'll have a little kind of prediction as to which way they're going to go. Um, first of which will be France Nigeria. How, which way do you see that one going, lads? It's got to be France, isn't it? Yeah, all day. Chicken, just, no, just, just going to be too strong. No potential upset? No room for an upset? I mean, if Vincent Anyema has the game of his life, I mean, and there's every chance that you could, he's a fantastic keeper, then Nigeria might have a chance. But they've just got far too much firepower and the midfield balance is just perfect. I can't see any other outcome. Germany-Algeria? That can surely only be going one way. Yeah, there's only one way that's going to end. Do you, do you not even don't even think the likes of Nabil Bentaleb, who uh, is arguably the world's best player at the moment? <laughs> um, He's had a fantastic tournament, but I, I don't think they're they're gonna they're gonna be able to cause Germany too many problems. Yeah, it should be pretty uh, pretty straightforward, I think. Argentina Switzerland. Now you you've already aired some pretty controversial thoughts about that one, Rob Brown. Yeah. How do you feel about it, Raj? Because you were decidedly quiet around that. Their um their thoughts I share to be honest. I think that uh, Switzerland have it well within them to to defend as a unit and stifle Argentina for large parts of that game, and um and hurt them on the brute because Argentina defensively are an absolute shambles. Um, I think uh, if they are to to drop Gago, I think that'd be from my point of view at least a mistake because, as Rob says, they do play in, in such a such a broken manner. It's almost like American football, where they've got two different units. They've got you know the defensive part of them, they've got the attacking part of them. In the middle, they've got this strange band of midfield with Gago and Mascherano. And Mascherano's he breaks up the play and he recycles possession, but none of it's done with any sort of impetus as to to attack him. Whereas Gago, he's his his first. He always looks up and he always puts his foot on the ball and always looks to pass forward, which I think is an important thing. I think the relationship he had with Messi in qualification is something that's often not given as much attention as it perhaps could have done because he was one of the players that assisted him the most and set him off the most when he's, he's when Messi comes and drops back a little bit deeper um, from from the front. Um, so I, I don't think Gago is somebody I'll drop, but as I say, Switzerland could drop them. Um, and not the so do you, do you Would you drop Mascherano then? I would. I don't or think would Argentina are gonna. Um, I don't think Argentina are gonna. Um, I think. It, I think it's all about. It's a similar problem to what they have at Tottenham in that the deeper band in midfield don't really work as a cohesive partnership, which hurts the rest of the team. Um, and I think 
Mascherano needs to know that his job is to win the ball. And I think they need to give Gago more of a responsibility to slightly push forward on the ball and to affect the front three a bit more and be the link in between the two parts of the team. And if they were to establish that and, and tell Mascherano that he, he's not to be getting too involved with attacks because he's, he's position is often Ill, ill-disciplined. When he gets hold of the ball, he'll go on these strange runs that often lead to nothing because he's, he's as threatening in attack as, as I would be in a World Cup. He's, he's, got, he's got no sort of goal-scoring ability or, or creation to him whatsoever. He's, he's fantastic defensively. So I think they just need to to let them know what their positions are there. And I think if they do that and they allow Gago to be the supplier of the ball to the front three that he's been previously, then um, then they'll be much better off than they have, have done uh, so far. But, um, I, if I had to pick between the two, I think um, I'd be tempted to go for Switzerland just because I think Argentina are likely to um, misunderestimate them. And if they do that, then that plays into Switzerland's hand. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd go with that. I mean, when I was drawing up my alternative tactics for Argentina and discussing it with friends, my my first uh, reaction was to get rid of Mascherano because he slows everything down so much, whereas Gago speeds everything up. But he's just undroppable. I mean, him and Messi are the, the, the faces of the team. And if it would be the same as England sending Gerard and Rooney home, they'd just be bedlam. It'll, you'd probably get a better starting 11 out of it, but there'd be absolute carnage off the field and morale would go through the floor because everyone would be fighting. So I, just, I, I see it as quite a... There's no easy solution to it. I mean, I've heard one suggestion that Mascherano moves to centre-back and then you have Gago in the midfield and you get maybe another passer in there or Enzo Perez. But he's not a centre-back. He's just not. <laughs> he did there, did well there under very a very specific system with Pep Guardiola, but this season's proved that he can't do it outside of that. If 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 he plays in a more conventional system as a centre back, he's just not, just won't 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 work. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd still think Argentina would be favourites, but it's, it's going to be closer than people think. I'd probably say it's sixty forty in Argentina's favour. Sweet. All right then. Um, and we've got one more fixture, haven't we? Hang on. Where is it? Belgium, USA. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I can actually see the US causing an upset against Belgium. Yeah, I, I kind of hope they do, to be honest, because oh, it would God. just be why, why, why not? It would be great. I mean, maybe it's because I speak to so many Americans on Twitter or whatever, or maybe because uh, Belgium have been so poor. But I think it'd be really good if the United States got to a quarterfinal um, and they could build on it. I hope Belgium score ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they could. Who knows? Yeah, it'll be a good game. I'll be interested to see how... Uh... I genuinely think Belgium are going to win that, by the way. That's, uh, that's just... Partisan views about the American sport aside, um, I do think Belgium are going are gonna to win that. Belgium should win. I think it'll be very similar to all of Belgium's games so far. I mean, if you're thinking about it logically, like you, like you said earlier, it's, it's the same system as they've faced so far. They're going to be sitting... The USA, that is, are going to be sitting very deep and trying to restrict Belgium's space, but... They're going to get drawn out and they're going to get counted and they are going to lose. That's basically how it's going to turn out. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, as ever, Rob. And uh, Not a problem we'll, at all. We'll probably chat to you in a few days' time, mate. Brilliant. Cheers. Well, if you've made it this far, you need a fucking hobby. <laughs> um, no, thank you for listening. Um, 
Thank you for listening. <laughs> Um, it's been good and I, I, I will probably do another one of these um, after the next round don't you, you yeah, after, after the round of 16 it'll probably be much shorter because we don't have anything left to talk about the group stages obviously of course so the most yeah. full part of it we'll be back as there's well only, um, there's only 25% of the tournament left apparently which is a, a sad statistic yeah I suppose if you look at it that way but it's the most exciting part now, though. So, yes, it is. Ah, there you go. And you can keep filling in your notes in your little book, huddled away in a corner. Not huddled away in a corner. Me, yeah, me, and Sam had a discussion about our notes. Um, he, he too has a book full of notes of, of games that he's he's written. Just Sam Dis. Sam Ty. Oh, uh, I was going to say Sam Dis's notes will just be like which. I don't. <laughs> Sam Sam's not watched any of the World Cup. I think the other day he watched. Um, murdered by my boyfriend or something instead of a game so this isn't high up on his list of priorities really strange i don't think so he's watched he's watched the odd game but um he yeah you know what he's like he, he prefers his made in chelsea to yeah made in chelsea and ukip <laughs> U, ukip <laughs> campaign videos we ever talk about i know we said we we're gonna keep this short but did we ever talk about the <laughs> english democrats um Oh, party political broadcast. God, that was awful, wasn't it? It was the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Was, was that the thing with that Rocky number in the background where it's singing about like Charles Dickens and Bobby Moore and stuff? And he's like, what, what are you doing? Billy Bragg's right wing brother <laughs> singing that song. It was amazing. <laughs> I sometimes go back and watch it just to make me happy. It was, it, so, it was almost as good as from the, well, the Roost um, account when you called out that UKIP, whatever he was, UKIP M- MEP. Oh, yeah, we had a UKIP MEP one time retweet something we'd done and like um, send us a tweet saying, oh, that was really funny. And like, he's obviously a Spurs fan. And I saw it and I just felt deeply uncomfortable with it. So I texted you straight away and went, do you mind if I um, if I rinse the shit out of this UKIP MEP? And you just went, you literally replied within seconds, do you even need to ask? And I just... Of course the answer was a, no, but... Two or three tweets, I just went, can you please never do anything with us? Can you please unfollow us and never retweet anything we say again? Because we would hate to think people associate us with you in your strange political ways. You, so it felt good. It felt good doing that that day. He didn't even it. reply, did he? No, I think he just went into his shell. I think he, he clicked on like the bio and realised he was endorsing a brown man and he, he felt deeply ashamed of himself. Yeah, he went and flagellated. Um, but yeah, well, we'll be back soon as well. If we don't get around to doing a World Cup thing, we'll be back soon to talk about Tottenham, I suppose, if we have to. Fucking won't be. Yeah. <laughs> After all of our players have had a fantastic World Cup, Polino going to get dropped. There was one game where all three Belgian players got dropped and the only one that's, that are performing are Hugo Lloris and Nabil Bentaleb. So what a, what a time to be a Tottenham fan this I is. I think what, what I thought was particularly good as well, just, just so... I'm not going to use the word Spursy, just very Tottenham, was uh, there was like this big retweet chain going around um, saying like, you know, since 1958, this is the worst England have ever performed. It's also the first time since 1958 that there hasn't been a single Spurs fan, Spurs player in the team, which is just incorrect because it was 1954 the last time there wasn't a Spurs player in the team. So there you go. Um it's not as quite as funny and as good as I made it out to be, really, is it? 
No, it was just you being a pedant, really. Yeah, but still, you know, wankers. Um, let's let people rest now, shall we? Yeah. Um, Ciao. Uh, Ciao, yeah, Bella. you know where we are. We, we don't need to do any of the usual spiel that we do at the end of an episode. This isn't a proper one. Uh, Ciao, Perlo, as well. Big man. Rest oh. in peace. <laughs> not dead. <laughs> he's, he's gone to his vineyard. I'd like to be in his vineyard. Oh, good God, mate. I'd love to sniff his beard. <laughs> That's just odd. It's, it's just, man, you could just, like, if you just wring it out into a bottle, you could wear that and just instantly get laid. Yeah, oh, there's people, cologne. you know, that there are people apparently that, um, like, use leftover semen and rub that on themselves because of the natural hormones that they give out. Apparently some men believe that it helps them when pulling. That's what Fred, but, West, Fred West used to do, instantly. Is it? Your, yeah. your knowledge of the West family always seems to disturb me. I read a book about them. <laughs> I know you did, that's why. <laughs> it freaks me out every time how, how much you enjoy the West family. Yeah, you can't even begin to believe how, how much I enjoyed my reading of that book. I'll have to, but we, we can do a swap. Um, I've got a book that I've just finished reading on Pablo Escobar, so we, we always like <laughs> fill our time reading about the most morally acceptable people possible. Yeah, well, you know, the most. Let's not get into it. Um, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.